0: Heads up, this episode, John and Darren roll camera on conspiracy theories, self mythologizing, and Viet fucking Nam as we go to the movies on Here's Why It's Great. and welcome to Here's Why It's Great, the podcast where we take what you hate and tell you why it's great. I am your host, John Bring, and I'm happy to say that today we have a returning guest. He is my best friend since I was nine years old. Last time he was on the show, we covered the Super Mario Brothers movie. This time we're going to be covering quite a few movies. Welcome back to the show, Darren Beasley. Hey! Hey! How you doing, man? We're doing this over Zoom As uh, all podcasts are doing right now, but we would have had to do this over Zoom anyway because you're way back east in Valdosta, Georgia.
1: Yeah, we've lived uh, on uh, opposite sides of our country now for over
0: 14 14 years. Over 14 years now. Since July of 2006, we have been bicoastal buddies and we've made it work, folks. Just like any uh, good long-distance relationship, we keep the magic alive however we can.
1: <laughs> oh, and today, I think, is going to be the creation of quite a bit of magic, if I do say so myself.
0: We can only hope, right? So what have you been up to during this quarantine, these 52, 53 days?
1: A lot of repetitive BS, to be perfectly honest. Um, for those who are listening who don't know me personally uh, or do didn't hear the last episode of here's why it's great that I was on very quickly about me. I am a teacher at a college preparatory Academy. I teach AP social studies. So like AP world history, AP us history, et cetera, et cetera. So I have had to transition to distance learning, teaching classes over zoom, prepping kids for their AP exams, et cetera, et cetera. But while that does comprise a large portion of my day, I have also been pretty deeply affected by the quarantine because absolutely nothing else is normal. Not that the teaching, not that the distance learning is normal, but everything else is equally as abnormal as could possibly be. Having spent many, many years in the food industry and catering, I, you know, I cook, I like to cook. I love to cook, but at this point, I'm so sick of cooking uh, at my house, cooking every single meal that I have eaten, uh, with the exception of one, uh, in 53 days. I mean, I'm just sick of it. So it's, uh, it's I hear you. I
0: hear you on that one for sure. Actually, we kind of like lean too much on ordering in before this all happened. So I'm actually, I was originally, initially, really enjoying the act of cooking and the routine of cooking every single night. But uh, Lindsay and I decided, like, let's take three weeks. Let's just do three weeks where we do not order in at all, which is hard because you do want to support uh, local businesses. That's the only way they're making money right now. But also, that gets expensive when you're doing it almost every day. So we went three weeks without having any kind of eating out, and we finally broke the seal on it again last night. We, we decided to give ourselves a nice, like, cheat day, and we went fucking ham. It was. We, did, <laughs> we, did, we didn't eat ham, but we went ham. It was. Uh, I, I ordered basically our, our favorite Indian restaurant. Lindsay got sushi because I'm not a big sushi guy. But I ordered basically a meal that usually Lindsay and I take down together. I ordered that for myself. And it was glorious. It was so wonderful. Wow. And then I got some ice cream and some cake. I, I really, truly went overboard. And I regret nothing.
1: Yeah. Meanwhile. I had three scrambled eggs <laughs> and a piece of toast, about six cups of black coffee, and that's all I've eaten today. I just
0: ate a, a sugar-free shortbread cookie. Oh my god! And you a need diet to eat, man. Also, I don't want to not- eat because
1: I have to. Means I have to fucking cook.
0: Oh, that's true. But uh, six cups of coffee, uh, especially just black, pure black coffee, would make my heart explode out of its out of its chest. Out of my chest, even. Uh, I, I, like, I don't know how you handle that amount of caffeine. Like, I drink a lot of tea dr- throughout my day, but holy shit, man, six cups of coffee. If I drink one, like one espresso, and obviously espresso stronger, <laughs> I turn into a different person. It is definitely a Jekyll and Hyde situation where one time it was my first TV job on the show without a trace. It was one late night, and a lot of shows get lunch for you and go get coffee runs throughout the day. This show did not do that. But I think it was just an especially rough day, and our production coordinator did something nice for us and did go get a coffee run for everybody. And I didn't know what to order because you know me. I I just don't drink coffee. But I got a caramel macchiato because that sounded like a delightful thing to get. And I was so amped and so, like, jacked off of this one coffee drink, which is also, like, you know, pounding sugar in addition to the caffeine, that I was just – I was, like, roasting everybody in the office – (laughs) <laughs> and I kept, like, doing like, weird bits, and I was, like, tap dancing, and uh, eventually they were like, John, you're, like, <laughs> a monster when you're drinking caffeine. Like, you drink coffee and you become a monster. You're an asshole. Just because I kept, like, ribbing everybody. And it was, like, me thinking <laughs> I was being, like, oh, look, look, me being funny. But apparently it got too real. And so ever since that day, I tried to watch my uh, coffee intake.
1: Well, that's uh, that's kind of terrifying. Uh, I know that I have, I have definitely seen you amped up. I don't know that it's ever been off of coffee. I don't know if I've ever seen you drink coffee. I don't think you ever had coffee in the first 25 years of your life. But... <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. I think that Kathy... might have been the
0: first day that I actually had like a coffee drink. Honestly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I was raised on Coca-Cola and uh, as a result, my body doesn't know how to uh, respond to caffeine. It processes it with absolutely no impact. And so uh, as, as a result, I can drink coffee and diet Coke all day long. And I drink a pot of coffee and go straight to sleep. Caffeine oh, does not, me. does not amp me up. So I drink it because I like it. I don't, That's I don't why I need drink
2: iced
0: it. tea. Like low levels of caffeine. Like I used to, like, drink six Diet Cokes a day. Uh, I eventually quit drinking Diet Coke because I saw some video on the internet where they, like, took a tarnished penny and it cleaned it just by dipping it into the Diet Coke. And I was like, well, well that's a wrap on Diet Coke. Uh, well, dude,
1: you remember you remember in high school, I think, I don't know who, I think it was maybe Coach Burroughs, uh, biology teacher. I know you didn't have Coach Burroughs, but I know that I made a very big deal about this for a very long time. He submerged a hot dog in a glass of, coca-cola classic and it ate the fucking hot dog
0: holy shit <laughs> how, now, are they just, that, how are they selling that to people that's insane i don't know
1: i don't know i know that the interior of the human stomach is made of sterner
0: stuff yeah. than a hot dog but still <laughs> no nothing you ingest should yeah be able to break down fleshy material because you are fleshy material
1: yeah if you're eating it it should not be able to eat you back but at the end of the day Mm, it's good. <laughs> oh, man, golly. I, I famously said, uh, and our good friend Jared will remind anyone who's got ears. Uh, One time I said, the only thing I like more than Diet Coke is regular Coke. Hell yeah. And uh, someone in a tower in Atlanta
0: uh, said, good, good. Yeah, Mr. Burns is sitting in his office, like rubbing his fingers together. Yeah, and I still to this day, like when I go to the movies, that's the main time where I miss my Diet Coke. Uh, Before any AMC movie, they show the same animation of a little AMC symbol flying by their soda machines. And every time they show, like, somebody pouring a Coke for themselves and just the fizz and seeing the brown color and the fizz, it just, like, sets off something in my brain similar to if I hear any kind of, like, slot machine sound, like, just the ding, 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 ding of a slot machine. It sets off something in my brain, a Pavlovian response. Where I just start to salivate and I can't help myself. I just—they've uh, got me <laughs> so hard, and I haven't had like a diet coke in at least a couple <laughs> of years. But, god damn it, every time I'm at the theater and I see that little animation before the uh, the movie starts, it's just—it's so hard to to not jump out of my chair and go to the concession stand and go get a diet coke. But. That's neither here nor there. Uh, We should just jump into our topic because we got a lot to discuss today.
1: Yeah, man, I'm all for it because I am excited about this topic and I know i got a lot to say. And I'm really excited to hear what you have to say.
0: Uh, I've got a lot to say indeed. (laughs) So what we're talking about today is the filmmaker Oliver Stone. A uh, very looming figure in film, especially during the 80s and 90s, during his heyday. He was a giant, a uh, two-time Oscar winner for Best Directing, a multi-time Oscar winner for Screenwriting. He uh, wrote fucking Scarface and uh, Midnight Express. Like I said, he was a titan when we were growing up. Like, he was maybe, besides Spielberg, one of the first filmmakers that I knew by name. Oh, he's definitely... I, I mean, I think Spielberg, for our generation,
1: Spielberg is certainly the first one that any of us learned by name Um I think Hollywood, especially '80s Hollywood, really celebrated Spielberg, and I, I'm pretty sure Spielberg was uh, had a big hand in celebrating Spielberg. Oh, of so, course, but hey, that's man, okay. Look, I that mean, guy
0: fucking earned it. Go watch that HBO documentary on Spielberg, and you'll respect him, even if you don't like his brand. Uh, you gotta respect the guy. He's the best. Of oh all the time. yeah, He's my no doubt. Director.
1: I, I think that's that's a that's a very cool solid favorite as far as film director uh it would not he would not be mine but i think spielberg for our generation is certainly a director you'd learn first i would say it was probably oliver stone or stanley kubrick for me that i learned about second and then after i had learned about those three dudes i probably didn't pay attention to another director until, until I let me was guess old. Kevin Smith. Oh, yeah. You know what? Exactly. Kevin yeah. Smith.
0: Kevin Smith was ultimately the guy who set me on my journey to where I'm at now, being in Los Angeles, California. He can't even touch the hem of any of these filmmakers' garments. But even though I was obsessed with like James Cameron and John McTiernan movies back in the 80s and Richard Donner, I didn't know those names. But for whatever reason, Oliver Stone absolutely I knew him by name because I think and we'll obviously get deeper into this the guy just had a style that was unmistakable and it was so unique to his brand of filmmaking.
1: Oh yeah, totally. That that that's an easy um thing to say and it's absolutely accurate. Oliver Stone had talk about brand, I mean, and that's what we're going to talk about today is he certainly had a brand and there's plenty of people that don't like it. And, there, and there's lots of, lots of different angles on that, a lot of different things to dislike. But Oliver Stone, I think, became so big and important to me at a very, very early age uh, because I, for several different reasons, became completely obsessed with the Vietnam War at like the age of eight. My parents raised me in a household that was informed by protest songs and anti-war sentiment. And... I immersed myself in reading about Vietnam. And so that also meant that if I, there was a TV show or a movie or anything, anything that had to do with Vietnam music. I mean, I discovered a lot of musicians because they touched on Vietnam and so in their body of work that made Oliver Stone jump out at me because he had a lot to say about Vietnam. And then, and then of course there's that, that era's one, two punch of Kubrick's full metal jacket and stone's, platoon it really said all right here we are we are these filmmakers talking about this period of time
0: and i think that uh for you and i really truly today you could say that oliver stone is like a good touch point between the two of us you being a history teacher and you yourself being a historian. And me being, you know, somebody who's an aspiring filmmaker, I think that the point where we meet is Oliver Stone in that he himself is a filmmaker historian. And I think that's a really uh, neat thing that we'll talk about very soon. But I guess the the question that may be on some people's minds, Oliver Stone, obviously, his heyday is uh, behind him. I will admit that. And we're mostly going to talk about that heyday. But who is Oliver Stone? Those who don't know him would probably at least have seen Wall Street. I guess you could argue his most famous work. Uh, Wall Street, yeah. Wall
1: Street is probably the most visible over the course of his entire career. I would say that Natural Born Killers and JFK turn him into a major figure of controversy. And then if you follow Stone or you follow film, then you're going to be very aware of, like, the hoopla surrounding Alexander. And then, of course... I mean, hell, the Academy, at least, loved Born on the Fourth of
0: July. So, Darren, since you are the historian, why don't you regale us with just like a quick biography of Oliver Stone? Let us know a little bit of his background so we can better understand him.
1: Okay, this I think will most greatly benefit those who just don't know who the hell Oliver Stone is. Um, This man is born in 1946, immediately following World War II, born in New York City, raised in New York City by a Jewish American father and a French Catholic mother. Despite the uh, diverse religious household, he was not raised Jewish or Catholic. Instead, he was raised in an Episcopal church. He was an only child, and I know for a fact, because I've heard him talk about it, his being an only child uh, gave him that early uh, imaginative drive. He had to entertain himself. He had to find some way to while away the hours, et cetera, et cetera. He's also a child of divorce. His parents divorced his mother, kind of, (laughs) for lack of a better term, she fucked off back to Europe or somewhere else. And uh, as a result, the divorce, his being an only child, him being sent away to boarding school, he raised himself out of boarding school. uh, Oliver Stone went to Yale, dropped out in less than a year. And actually, by the time that he's 17 years old and going to school at Yale, the Vietnam War is well underway. Oliver Stone's first touch with Vietnam is him traveling to work in Vietnam, teaching English. He was basically a ESL teacher. And uh, he did that for a little while before joining the Merchant Marine and sort of slowly making his way back to the United States and Yale. But after... <laughs> less than a year again he dropped out a second time to write a novel and as a 19 year old he wrote uh his first and only novel which we, he would not publish for almost 30 years and that is, is called, something I would... here's
2: why
0: the government's fucked up
1: <laughs> it's called a child's night dream okay and, uh... or that or that but let me just <laughs> let me
0: just like point this out real quick what 19 year old finishes a novel I mean, obviously, you and I had created a lot growing up. You know, I'm a child of divorce as well, as are you. We uh, were left to our own devices, mostly during summers, because our parents worked. So we sort of filled our time the same way that I suppose he did. So I can see a lot of similarities and in, in why that why we probably gravitated towards him just on some sort of soul-to-soul level. So he wrote this novel, didn't publish it for 30 years. So what did he do after that? I mean, at this point, he's 19. He's traveled the world. He's gone to Yale a couple times. What else is left? He's already done it all.
1: There's a lot left. He's going to live several lives before he even really starts his life's work. So, I mean, he's born in 46. He's obviously a baby boomer. But, you know, not all of the baby boomers embraced the Cold War and the American effort to stop the progression of communism in the world. But Oliver Stone did. So now he's 20 years old. He enters the United States Army and requests
0: combat duty in Vietnam. Sounds similar to multiple characters from his movie. Well, exactly.
1: I mean, Platoon is very thinly veiled autobiography. Oh, yeah, um, of course. He enters the infantry. He's wounded twice in action. I mean, Oliver Stone is a multi-time Purple Heart recipient. He and won he also, the Bronze...
0: Yeah, the Bronze Star was the other thing he won, yes?
1: Yeah, well, actually, he was pretty highly decorated. But the, in addition to the Purple Heart, one of his largest commendations is the Bronze Star for Valor. I mean Bronze Star for Valor you weren't just Fucking around you know you were not an also Ran Oliver Stone was in the shit And and he was fighting and he Was killing and he was almost dying That's going to inform the shit out of me Uh, You know I don't know about you but that's Definitely going to set the tone for Oliver Stone and I I don't um, want
0: to jump too far ahead into his filmmaking career but just to just to sprinkle in this uh looking ahead at his filmmaking career and looking at his time in Vietnam if you're getting the bronze star for valor that's a guy with reckless abandon perhaps uh, a, a sense of every moment could be your last and I feel like that's how he made films I think that that's something that really carries through his entire career And this is another similarity that I have to him. Every script I write, I write it as if it's the last thing I'll ever do. Every comic book I've ever done, it's chock full of ideas and feelings, and maybe it's too overstuffed. But, yeah, especially during that heyday, holy shit, the guy, like, just went for broke every single time.
1: Well, as one of his subjects would say, Alexander, fortune favors the bold, and you can call it reckless abandon, if you will. But you can also consider it self-confidence. Hell, you can call it arrogance, if you want. And a lot of Oliver Stone's subjects in his films will be arrogant. I mean, fuck. Jim Morrison, Gordon Gecko, Richard Nixon.
0: Oh, yeah. He's definitely got a type uh, when you're talking about <laughs> his his protagonists. This could be actually, I would say, a criticism of his that I have rewatching a lot of his movies. There is nothing but straight ass white dudes as the leads of these movies. And that continues to today other than heaven and earth, which uh, sadly I did not watch during this roundup is the only female lead. And I feel like the only non white lead that Oliver Stone has had. Uh, I could be wrong on that because I certainly haven't watched everything he's done. I think we're going to
1: talk about this later. I know we'll talk about this later, but this is a good opportunity to talk about it a little bit now I understand why that might be a criticism of yours. If his films as a whole were devoid of any consideration of women or people of color, then I would feel that that would be a 100% dead on balls criticism and it would be more than fair. But I feel that they're not. I feel that those things are represented. There are elements of, for lack of a better word, diversity and inclusion. That, that, that's evident in his, in his work. What is not evident is that of it, it taking center stage. And the reason for that is because so many of these protagonists are avatars for Oliver Stone. While that is fair to say that Oliver Stone does not give us necessarily the perspective of a diverse part of the, the population, I don't think it's, uh, I, it's definitely not ignorance. I definitely don't think it is uh, hate or prejudice. I, I just think, He knows uh, the story that he wants to tell, and he he has a singular voice for doing that.
0: I mean, I think that a great storyteller, and not saying that he's not great uh, as a storyteller, but a great storyteller can put themselves into any character. But he went to Vietnam. We'll talk about it later, but the guy who asked for combat duty, who asked to go into the front line of Vietnam, obviously at some point lost his faith in what he was fighting for, which... That runs through most of his movies, so I'm assuming he lost his faith in our country and what it was fighting for and what it stands for while in Vietnam?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, You're going to see that repeatedly with people becoming disillusioned with a path or the path or their path or their destiny uh, is, is a major theme. There was some sort of virtuous promise that he was born with, that he believed he was born with, or he was given, or he was tasked with, even. And it all fucking went away. And I think it just left him feeling that, like, okay, well, virtue. What is virtue? Virtue is relative. uh, And who's virtuous?
0: I think, uh, to put it succinctly, what he learned in Vietnam, as uh, Fiona Apple so bluntly put it, this world is bullshit that's usually that's usually the final point in most of oliver stone's films that i watch. no
1: this world is bullshit man like fiona apple was right and you know when the thing is once you've reached that if you really find yourself in that sort of like desolation you know you start looking for anything and you know at that point you're you're on a highway to nihilism and you know and and i definitely think that that's where some of oliver stone's protagonists find themselves when they've lost any and all rudders they 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 are adrift
0: so stone obviously found himself adrift after vietnam but what happened when he went back to the states
1: he comes back to the united states finds himself back in new york city enrolls in nyu and he he will graduate from nyu he doesn't drop out like he did twice from yale he graduates with a bfa in film from nyu in 1971 Taught by uh, Marty
0: Scorsese, or yeah?
1: Exactly. That's what I was about to say. He's a student of Scorsese, and it's going to take him almost a decade to really break in. And, and, and you mentioned earlier, he breaks into Hollywood as a screenwriter. 1979, he wins an Academy Award for fucking writing Midnight Express. Uh, and here, hey, the controversy starts there. I know we're talking about Oliver Stone, the film director, but the controversy starts with Midnight Express. He was criticized very heavily for that script. I mean, it won him an Academy Award, but it pissed off all kinds of people, including the nation of Turkey. The Turks took quite, uh, quite a bit of exception to <laughs> Oliver Stone's uh, poetic
0: license, if you will. <laughs> a dramatic license. Yeah. From yeah. what I remember, uh, and it's been a very long time since I've seen that movie, maybe since high school, college. But yeah, they're sort of portrayed as just monsters throughout. Oh,
1: absolutely. He took a great deal of liberties, both from the source material, as well as liberties with history in general. And uh, hey, uh, that's going to gonna
0: be a hallmark of his style. That's the Oliver Stone brand, baby. And, but, and talking um, about controversy, he went f- straight from that, and then the next thing he would go to, one of uh, Marty Scorsese's buddies, Brian De Palma, made the very famous, very controversial film Scarface. Everybody knows Scarface, right? Oh, like, God. Everybody you, knows Scarface. If you've been to a, a men's dorm room, you've at least seen the poster <laughs> hanging up somewhere. Uh, we had a buddy in high school that was absolutely 1,000% obsessed With Scarface, he wanted to be Tony Montana. He used to drive around with the tops down. He had a, a, what was the type of car, was it?
1: 300 ZX.
0: He had the T-tops down with the Giorgio Moroder score blasting. His seat as far back as it could go, like trying to look like a gangster. And this is like redheaded white dude in South Georgia thinking he was a, <laughs> thinking he was Tony Montana and uh and I'm like every time I think about that I'm like did he never watch the end of the movie <laughs> did he not see Tony well, uh, ultimately destroy himself well I mean hey if you look at that movie and look at that script by Oliver
1: Stone it's uh a major indication of how he was living his 1970s and it was cocaine addled and you could tell
0: that that carries on into the work itself because he was somebody who really, I think, pioneered like the quick cutting techniques that are unfortunately rampant today. The Michael Bay style, if you will, you can't hang on to a shot for more than like a second and a half or something like that. Everything's on overdrive in a an Oliver Stone film. But anyhow, so back to Oliver Stone screenwriting that obviously got him on the map, won him an Oscar. Uh, probably should have won him an Oscar for Scarface, honestly. At what point did he start actually making his films?
1: His first film he actually made in 1974. Strangely enough, and this is very odd, 74, he makes a movie called Seizure, and in 1981 he makes a movie called The Hand, starring Michael Caine. And these both of these movies are horror movies. And to me, <laughs> I mean, Oliver Stone is a lot of things. a horror movie director. It just doesn't make sense to me. And I, I honestly feel like these the, are certainly a part of his his oeuvre, but I, they're not part of this conversation.
0: Yeah, I feel like usually those are overlooked. I feel like Salvador or like 86 was like the year where everyone's like, yep, that's when he started making movies.
1: But yeah, 86, he makes Salvador and Platoon. And then it is just like crazy. The very next year, Wall Street. The very next year, Talk Radio. The very next year, Born on the Fourth of July. Then he takes 2 years to make both The Doors and JFK.
0: Yeah, that's insane. Come out uh, the same year. Yeah, that's crazy. That I'm back to Spielberg, that reminds me of the run that he had in the late 80s early 90s, specifically 1993 when he made Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. Uh, on the same year, which, that, <laughs> like, that still to this day blows my fucking mind that Jurassic Park, just to uh, say it out loud, is my favorite movie. And is it the best movie ever made? Is it perfect? No. But it is the movie that has brought me the most joy in my life. And it's the, one of the few movies where I can literally watch it every day and never get tired of it and always seem to find new things. But, yeah, so Stone. Fuck, what a run. In that run, let's just talk about real quick before we get into the movies themselves, like this is his period of controversy where people really started to turn on him. Now, obviously, people had criticisms of Platoon and of other films that he put out, but he won Best Directing Oscars for that and for Born on the Fourth of July, and these were very personal films to him, and they were critically lauded, and they were also commercially successful, But I think at that point, after those couple of movies came out, he really turned it up a notch, and people didn't appreciate the things he had to say for films like JFK, Natural Born Killers, things that he had to say about the government, things he had to say about our society. Maybe those people were misguided in what they thought about him, or maybe they were judging a book by its cover, but I think he really became a polarizing figure in those 80s and 90s films because. Honestly, I think that he's a guy who always swung for the fences. That guy never tried for a bunt. Sometimes that's going to rub people the wrong way. If you're trying to make big statements with every single movie you put out, you're eventually going to say something that's going to make somebody angry.
1: Yeah. I mean, first of all, the fact that there was criticism heaped upon movies that were commercially successful and Academy Award winning, I mean, at some point, you got to look at some of these critics and go, well, if you didn't have anything negative to say, you'd be out of a fucking job. I mean, and that's long been my perspective on critics, on professional critics, especially if they do not operate themselves in any way in the realm of the industry that they're critiquing. Uh, I, I think that you should have participated in film some way before you start telling a professional how the hell they do what they do. But that's a whole other thing where I have a problem with critics in general. Okay. A lot of things get thrown at Oliver Stone, big words, big ideas and big criticisms, but they typically center around the fact that he is to use critics words, sentimental, bombastic, Self-righteous, okay? You see how that escalated? (laughs) Sentimental is typically a a, a criticism because somebody thinks that something is sappy or it's melodramatic. Okay, bombastic. Well, maybe you are... uh, It's a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. Um, So that's a little more critical. That's that's a little bit harsher. Self-righteous, okay, that's basically saying that regardless of sentimentality and regardless of if you have something to say or not you certainly think that you do and you think that you're the one who's here to tell everybody so that's that's pretty damning i think it gets really nasty when you start saying he is a liar he is a propagandist to some a of the, traitor
0: probably the thing that sticks in my mind of my own personal opinion and my own perception of him up until revisiting all of his films. It's like, Oh yeah, he had a really successful career, but now he's a crackpot.
1: And and that, that is something that I would take exception to as a fan of Oliver Stone and somebody who's sitting here trying to tell you why he's great. I think Oliver Stone is a lot of things and I don't think crackpot is among them. Has he said some unsavory things? Has He said some controversial things. Has he done and said things that might be dangerous. Sure. And I don't mean to dismiss those things and I don't mean to sweep them under the rug, but I don't think he's a crazy person. The The problem is that I, I feel like liberals think he's, the liberals think he's not liberal at all. I was going to say not liberal enough, but I think they think that he's not, he's some sort of fascist. And I certainly think that conservatives are the first ones to say he's a crackpot, but the Republicans don't want Oliver Stone. They, they call him a, a radical, a traitor. You know, it, he can be seen as dangerous to any current contemporary American political position. And I understand that, but that's not who he is. He's not a politician. He's not running for office. He doesn't want your vote. He's an artist. Why is Why is Oliver Stone great? Because he's a myth maker. And cultures need myth makers because cultures need myths. Myths aren't always truths, but myths are essential.
0: Yeah, and I think that Oliver Stone, in addition to the myths that he's creating within his films, has also created a myth around himself in a lot of ways. And, I mean, why are we touching on this subject at all? Why are we even covering Oliver Stone? Why are we having to explain why a guy who's got four or five Oscars under his belt, why are you having to describe why he's great? Uh, it is because there's myths around him and myths within uh, his body of work that I think need addressing because like you said, he's pissed off conservatives and liberals. What kind of guy is so polarizing to be hated on all sides? But what we're doing here is we're gonna try to separate the man and the myth of the man from his work itself. We're gonna try to talk about the works as, as they stand on their own and him as an artist and a storyteller as opposed to what he thinks on the weekend or how he feels about (laughs) Russia or how he feels about our government at large. There's these things are going to come up, but we're really going to try to look at this and how we're going to look at it, I guess is I am going to definitely look at it from a filmmaker's perspective. Am I somebody who is a filmmaker on the level of Oliver Stone? Hell no. But I do feel like I've got that perspective that I'm coming at it from Darren. You certainly are coming at it from the perspective of a historian, but We are both kind of coming at it from the perspective of storytellers, which is what Oliver Stone obviously is. We're coming at it from the perspective of what is this guy trying to say and does he say it in a satisfactory way? And I think we're going to really cover a lot of ground over the course of these movies that we watch, which I watched uh, eight or nine movies in preparation for this, many of which I had seen before. But it was good to refresh my memory. But these are all honestly, with the exception of one that I watched last night, all in that heyday period From those glory days of 86 to the uh, late 90s where, uh, or the mid 90s rather, where Nixon came out. So it's basically from uh, Platoon to Nixon we watched. Let's just jump into some movies. Let's see if these works like stand on their own and see how they all work together as a full body of work. Because, uh, well, I will say this about Oliver Stone. One thing is, especially during this heyday, it really works as like one larger piece like a lot of filmmakers, Spielberg is certainly guilty of this. Are people who just make a movie because they're just trying to make entertainment, not necessarily trying to say sure. something? I mean, God, think about uh, Ready Player One. That movie literally had nothing to say. And to Oliver Stone's credit, he always has something to say, whether you agree with it or not. Uh, oh but... yeah,
1: and, and that's the big difference between Spielberg and Stone. And, and this is not a comparative piece of Steven Spielberg. Oh, certainly and not. Stone. Certainly not. But since you brought it up, you're right. Steven Spielberg is like, let's go to the movies. And Oliver Stone is like, man, I got some shit to tell you about. You've got to pay attention.
0: And eventually it's like, let's hate the government. (laughs) (laughs) But I thought we could start with Wall Street because as I said before, that's kind of Stone at his most, I guess you could say broad that's his most at his most entertaining one thing that I love. This is less to do with him and more to do with the time period. God damn it. I fucking love nineteen eighties New York realness. That, oh my god. That yes. Like, Pre-Giuliani cleanup. Man, I love like grimy, gritty ass New York. I miss shots of that skyline where it's kind of dingy and just full of smog. I-, I don't know what it was. It was just like dirty New York. I love that aesthetic so much. Oh my god, yeah. I mean, I don't necessarily want to live there.
1: <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. I-, I wanna look at that. I wanna look at that on my on my television stream.
0: Okay, so for anybody who hasn't seen Wall Street, it's the story of Bud Fox. He's a young trader in Wall Street in 1980s New York who eventually meets his idol, Gordon Gekko, played by Michael Douglas, who would go on to win an Oscar for this part. And Gordon Gekko, sleazy as hell, he is the guy who said the famous line, greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Bud and Gordon do some dirty dealings, and Bud in his quest to be the best to make all that money and to climb the ladder of 80s excess eventually nearly destroys himself and nearly kills his own father played by Charlie Sheen who obviously played the lead role of Bud Fox Uh, his father in real life Martin Sheen uh, who is fan-fucking-tastic in the movie plays his father who is his Jiminy Cricket his moral center and over the course of the movie he loses that moral center and it nearly destroys him but Uh, let's talk about some of the criticisms of this movie and we'll kind of jump into what we really loved about it and what makes it so great.
1: All right, Rita Kempley of the Washington Post uh, was not very kind at all. Uh, The the harshest criticism I think levied on Wall Street was that Wall Street was at its weakest when it preached visually or verbally. She goes on to say that Stone doesn't trust the time-honored storyline. He supplements the obvious moral with plenty of soap boxery. I think there's a lot there. And this is very early in Stone's career. And yet she's saying it's preachy. And she said that that's when the film is at its weakest is when he is preaching either verbally through his character's dialogue or visually, you know, and that reeks of melodrama. And it's interesting that she says Stone doesn't trust the time honored storyline. He beat you over the head with it
0: I kind of like that and I think that's probably honestly why this translates into one of its more popular movies to be honest it's not subtle and I think that is not always the worst thing in the world I think a lot of these criticisms will find out because I know that you you've read me a quote that's coming up Later about Platoon But I think we're coming off of like Filmmakers like Robert Altman Who is like the criticalist of darlings Uh, (laughs) um, (laughs) And I feel like people At least critics in the 80s Still wanted that Robert Altman, Woody Allen True like reality People just acting like people And they didn't have The patience for any melodrama For anything to be turned up to 11 Which is Oliver Stone's biggest Attribute but I think that they wanted something, they craved something that, honestly, society had a little bit moved past. Now, I'm sure if Wall Street came out now, they would heap praise on it because it's more subtle than anything that we get these days in the multiplex. You know, RIP the multiplex for right now. Do you agree? (laughs) I don't know if you agree or disagree with what I'm saying about, I think the critics just wanted something and they weren't getting it anymore.
1: Sure, in light of... you know, you alluding to Robert Altman and Woody Allen—is a critic ever going to get that out of Oliver Stone? Absolutely not. They're never going to get that out of Oliver Stone. Um, but does that mean that there's not reality there? I think that there's a lot of reality in Wall Street. Is it is it hyperbolic? Is it overblown? Is it shouting when shouting isn't necessary? Yeah, it is. But there's nothing unrealistic about that environment. That's why the the positive reviews of Wall Street the the love people have for that movie the love of people that were in that for that movie of people that were in that industry the, the shift of people toward that industry people that were inspired by it despite the fact that it was truly a cautionary tale yeah. instead people got
0: the wrong idea entirely and were like oh shit yeah yeah they missed the morality play section they must have missed the the third act and they're like fuck yeah i want to make baller ass money sign me <laughs> up bro gordon gecko's the well, tits and i think that the nineteen eighties.
1: We're not going to allow that type of uh, quiet introspection and and like stark reality. The nineteen eighties themselves were already turned up to eleven. Gordon Gecko and Bud Fox and their contemporaries. Look at the in that movie and look at the artwork in Bud's condo and the character that Daryl Hannah plays. Those all Oliver Stone did was hold up a fucking mirror. I mean, those people lived lives at 11. So in a weird way, Wall Street kind of was realistic. You say morality play. Clearly, that is what is at work here. But it doesn't make
0: it unrealistic. Certainly now, doesn't make it melodrama. Look, speaking to melodrama, there's a moment in the movie towards the end after I believe it's after Bud Fox's dad has a heart attack. After trusting his son and trusting Gordon Gecko, they're now dismantling the company he's worked for for 25 years. And Charlie Sheen stands on the balcony of his apartment overlooking New York and literally says out loud to nobody in particular, "Who am I?" Now. That's melodrama right there, baby. I feel like if instead of Charlie Sheen we had a young Martin Sheen do that exact same scene, maybe it would have played less melodramatically, but I don't think Charlie Sheen had the chops to handle that, which that's a tough line to get right when you're when you have no one to talk to and you're saying something as broad as who am I? So I do understand <laughs> some of that criticism. However, there is so much to love about this movie. Great cast. Like we can say this about every Oliver Stone movie. Motherfucker knows how to put together a cast. Uh, oh my god!
1: I mean, yeah, because you can actually use every type of casting term or cliche, and and Oliver Stone fits all of them. Like, is it? I mean, there, there's no extras. <laughs> you know, uh every role is an important role. um He definitely has some stuff that is tantamount to stunt casting. He has his uh, go-to guys.
0: Oh, yeah. He's got his uh, repertory players that all, I mean, Charlie Shing is one of them. John C. McGinley was the the one that I guess I'd forgotten about. Uh, To be honest, I had never seen Wall Street before watching it about a week ago in preparation for this. So I don't have any kind of nostalgia at play here when I say how much I really enjoyed it. I truly did. But the thing that surprised me was John C. McGinley, who obviously I think most people now probably know from Scrubs, but he is in a lot of Oliver Stone's movies, and I did not realize that until I I started watching them all back to back. He even had tiny roles in Born on the Fourth of July and Nixon, but uh, he's so good and so weird and so funny in this movie. Daryl Hannah is the only e- exception to the great casting, I think, in this movie. She seems a little miscast. She seems a little bit out at sea for a lot of this movie. Like, she doesn't quite fit in. I just think for somebody who's supposed to be so entrenched in this world and she's basically just as cutthroat as Gordon Gecko, she just never felt that way to me. Daryl Hannah had too much innate innocence for that particular role.
1: I, I agree. I-, I think that some of that was intentional because she's supposed to be, she's supposed to kind of be breaking the mold. She was not as gecko-fied as Gecko would have liked. And that's why she kind of falls for Bud Fox. Um, So there had to be a touch of vulnerability there. Couldn't just be some fucking ice queen, but you're right. Maybe Daryl Hannah didn't play that perfectly either. I will say one of the most interesting things about the movie to me is Looking at, and this is we're going to see this over and over again, we're going to see this uh, happen, is the exploration of parental relationships. Looking at uh, Bud Fox and his father in this movie, which of course is Charlie Sheen and his real-life father, Martin Sheen, they have a considerable amount of screen time together for the Martin Sheen character to kind of be a small character. They got a lot of screen time. It's a lot of one-on-one screen time. It's a lot of heart-to-heart shit a lot of face to face heart to heart man to man and it is like you know there's a lot of ripping shit up in this you get to see martin sheen be kind of aloof you get to see martin sheen be like totally there for his son you get to see him be like just furious with his son and then you get to see him in his ultimate moment of physical frailty as he weeps as bud sort of uh, is looking for his moment of redemption. I think that Oliver Stone, there's so much of that in his films. And, I mean, again, this is a, this is a child of divorce. This is a child who was sent off to boarding school, who maybe really didn't ever know his mother or understand his mother. And Wall Street is dedicated to his father.
0: Yeah, who was a real-life stockbroker.
1: Right, and I think that should jump right out at, at, at anybody who's analyzing these movies is he, he dedicates this film to his father. And really this film is a story about a father and a son. And yeah. Bud is trying to find out who he wants to be. And in, in that, in that quest to find who he wants to be, he kind of starts to say, who do I want my father to be? Do I, would I rather my father be Gordon Gecko?" And I mean, damn, if that's emblematic of uh, some soul searching that Oliver Stone did at one point, then that's, that's sad
0: yeah yeah just a a quick note of uh, about Martin Sheen it just reminded me what a world-class actor he is watching this movie and watching him opposite Charlie Sheen who's just not as strong or scenes where Martin Sheen and Michael Douglas are opposite each other just reminded me how fucking great that guy is he's absolutely fantastic in this movie. And you are absolutely touching on what I think Oliver Stone was going for with the choosing of the fathers. It's the choosing of, like, who do you want to be your father, but also obviously like, one's the angel and one's the devil on his shoulder. So there's that aspect too. But I think Bud Fox is also kind of like your typical uh, Oliver Stone protagonist. He's a straight white man <laughs> who wants to be great. He wants to be the best. He's reaching for that brass ring and we find out like what that costs over the course of the movie and it always costs his protagonist a whole lot uh,
1: of course it does and i think that that i think that that's straight up good storytelling i mean that's all all the pieces are there and i think that bud fox is a perfect protagonist in that sense he's aspirational he is looking for his own truth he's looking for for the truth as it's being presented to him by different people in different ways. I mean, who do you trust? And I think that Oliver Stone is always asking that who? could you possibly trust in this world
0: yeah that is definitely a theme that goes throughout all of his movies but one of the things that I really love about this movie is like I said the New York 80s realness but just the 80s realness and the feel like it's shot so well there are so many tracking shots when he goes to his trading office where they're making cold calls and I just love the look of it and Everybody in every scene is smoking. And I don't know. I just, that's the kind of aesthetic that I miss, the kind of aesthetic I like. Everything, there's a haze over everything. Very like Richard Donner look to it.
1: Oh, that's a good way. Yeah, that's a good way to describe that.
0: That was definitely like a hallmark of the 80s. But let's jump over to the 90s now. Let's talk about natural born killers and i'm not talking about it's the dr dre and ice cube song (laughs) (laughs)
1: well it's funny that you say that to go okay juxtaposing these two movies and taking a look at the 80s becoming the 90s what a big transition for oliver stone to make as we're going to talk about them You're going from 80s, like hyper-stylized 80s with pinstripe suits and suspenders and hair gel. And the architecture, my God, the Gordon Gekko's office. Right, and the leather furniture and the square-ass limousines. And then suddenly Natural Born Killers, and it is like, again, getting beat over the head with the 1990s. It's like it's crash TV. I mean, Natural Born killers feels like i'm watching the oj simpson trial at the same time as i'm watching beavis and butthead and i'm playing a jerky boys cassette tape and i'm listening to a nirvana cd and i literally like the best day ever (laughs) (laughs) and i'm doing it all at once and and everything is way too loud and it's way too vibrant and it's and it's too colorful but it's sad The 90s is acknowledging the rot of the 80s. Uh, The 80s was like a, a miniature gilded age in U.S. history where the undercurrents of the society were rotten. The riches of the 1980s in the United States were built on the backs of the poor. And the 1990s said, hey, don't forget the underbelly. Don't forget the rotten core you can put uh, a sheen on anything and i don't mean charlie or martin oh, right but you can paint you can put lipstick on a pig but the 90s were like we're taking this lipstick off the pig we might add some like glittery eyeshadow but this pig's a fucking pig and that's what the 1990s were and that's what natural born
0: killers is it's like fucking a pig it's, <laughs> wow well that's an interesting way to put it if that doesn't tell you enough, this is, like, definitely Stone's most controversial film. Far and away, I think. Uh, this one definitely got boycotted, picketed, all of the above. Like, people fucking hated this movie. A lot of crime was blamed on this movie. A lot of killing was blamed on this movie. And they obviously didn't see the movie, and or they missed the point. But what was the point of this movie? What was this movie about? It's about Mickey and Mallory Knox, played by the always wonderful... Woody Harrelson, and Juliette Lewis as a pair of deranged serial killers going across the country on an odyssey of death. And it's really a look into America's obsession with serial killers, and it's really uh, condemning the way that America treats serial killers and kind of puts them on a pedestal. It's a wild fucking movie. It's a wild ride. And it really, I, I, in talking about this uh, podcast before we actually started to record, I refer to a lot of things as like an Oliver Stone fever dream and nothing better describes this movie than as a fever dream.
1: This movie is total fever dream. We're going to see some of the like um, stylistic hysteria in bursts in jfk and in nixon but in natural born killers it's not in bursts it is one giant unrelenting burst of sight and sound and uh and, and fury and uh-huh. right and, and tone the tone like the choices god the the choices that stone made here turning uh, the look at mallory knox's home life into a twisted sitcom. I mean, the commentary on that is again, it's, it's as subtle as a sledgehammer to the testicles, but what stone is trying to say there is kind of what I was just saying about the 1990s in general, but he's sort of stone is sort of saying it about really, American television in general, which is... It's everything,
0: it's a lie. It's, it's a lie. It's, it's it's a facade. Yeah, yeah the it's image a, of the like perfect nuclear family is not real. Leave it to Beaver, the Cleavers don't exist and they never did.
1: Right. Okay, so criticism of this movie is, is plain and simple. We don't really have to even belabor the point, but I do want to quote a couple of people here. Oh yeah, I can't wait to hear these. Go ahead. Okay, James Berardinelli said that Oliver Stone is just outright a hypocrite. Which says to me, Berardinelli completely misses the point of this movie. And he goes on to say that for Oliver Stone to make an ultra-violent film in the guise of a critique of American attitudes makes him a hypocrite. Um, No, it doesn't. I, I, I do not think that social commentary is part of the problem. I think that Oliver Stone does a tremendous job with this movie in saying that these things are wrong. Uh I think Berardinelli misses the point entirely of this film, uh, because Oliver Stone is not creating this hysteria. Oliver Stone is not creating this uh corrupt society he's again he's
0: holding holding a mirror mirror. yeah i mean uh, a a lot of people just to, to go against this guy look no further than robert downey jr in this movie okay his name is wayne gale he's inexplicably australian robert downey jr had just come off of his worst period of his life this was after Chaplin, after the the his stint in jail for drugs robert downey jr was not on a hot streak yet uh, he is a sensationalist journalist who uh, has been following the story of Mickey and Mallory. He eventually gets a one-on-one interview with them and ends up, for the third act of the movie, basically joining them and becoming one of them and becoming becoming like them. Uh, but at the end of the movie, they set him up after they've escaped from prison that they've been in. Robert Downey Jr. has now killed, basically, in the name of Mickey and Mallory, and he has become like them, as he thinks— and he thinks he's going to join them on their road trip and he's going to be the third wheel in this relationship. He thinks that, like, oh, my God, you guys are so cool. Like, he idolizes them. He wants to be them. And they're like, no, you're a dipshit. And they shoot him on camera. And that's basically one of the final images of our movie. The final statement of the movie, I feel like, is that this guy who is so wrapped up in it who, that he wants to become them, eventually they gun him down because, like I said, he's a dipshit, he's an idiot, for drinking the Mickey and Mallory Kool-Aid. I want to say.
1: Oh, I I completely agree. Oliver Stone is saying, if this is you, you're fucked. Exactly. And for, for one reason or another, either you'll live your whole life in moral bankruptcy, or you'll give yourself over to it and you'll get yourself killed. But either way, this is not right. This is not righteous. This is not cool. Cool. Right. And that's another thing despite the criticism that natural born killers presented uh, mass murderers as being cool. If if you think that, if that's your takeaway from this movie, then you're as blind as Robert Downey Jr.'s character and you're an idiot. But you know, this dude, uh, Berard Nelly, he's not the only one. I mean, the movie barely doesn't get an NC 17 rating. Um, and I believe that this is the only time that Oliver Stone ever had to, face that possibility. Apparently he only had to remove four minutes (laughs) to get an R rating. So like, damn, what are those four minutes? (laughs) I don't know. And
0: I feel like it's also like we're looking at it from a 2020 lens where like films have gotten so much more violent. And honestly, I just like our daily lives have become so much more violent. People like Mickey and Mallory, unfortunately are real and they are coming out and doing these acts of mass murder with shocking frequency And so maybe we're just desensitized to it. But I remember I was watching it the other night just thinking, like, why was this such a big deal? I guess things were different back in the 90s. But now I watch it and I'm like, yeah, I'm sure you could reinsert, like, 14 extra minutes of graphic violence. And it'd probably still get an R rating today.
1: Oh, absolutely. I would be remiss if I did not include one of the biggest criticisms of this movie, which can – which which comes from uh, its original screenwriter, Quentin oh, Tarantino. Mr.
0: QT himself, Quentin Tarantino, which I think this was like his second script he had ever written, although he, as you're about to get into, didn't like it. Fuck you, Quentin Tarantino, for this being the second script you ever wrote. I feel like the second script I ever wrote was uh, <laughs> after I wrote my Batman and Robin sequel. I feel like the second script I wrote was such utter bullshit. It was like a Kevin Smith ripoff of me at a, working at my video store. Like that was an original oh, idea and uh, had yeah, lots of like, yeah. you know, quote unquote sharp dialogue. This was like my first real screenplay that I wrote in college and holy shit, it was so, so bad. So I cringeworthy. And it's like, that was my second script. Yours was natural born killers. Uh, I have my qualms with Quentin Tarantino, but fuck you QT for well, being so good at a young uh, age.
1: Well, Tarantino, he may have written a great script. I've never read it, It is not presented in this film. Tarantino will be the first person to tell you that. What I don't understand is if the screenplay was so precious to Tarantino, then why did he fucking sell it? Why did he let this happen? And I wasn't there. I don't know what he was promised or what he promised, but for him to have been so mad after the fact that Oliver Stone rewrote it and then made his version of it, which also, by the way, precluded Tarantino being able to ever publish his version of the script, which I thought was interesting. And you'd know a lot more about that than I I was going to
0: say, honestly, like if, if he weren't Quentin Tarantino and had he not won multiple Oscars for screenwriting, I would say, like, a big director coming through and rewriting your stuff, that's like a rite of passage for any screenwriter, I feel like. I've certainly gone through it with uh, one of my Supernatural scripts. I got heavily rewritten, and like, yeah, it's a bummer, but you don't hold a grudge about it for 20-plus years. It seems a little insane.
1: Well, yeah, but to quote Tarantino regarding Natural Born Killers, I hated that fucking movie. If you like my stuff, don't watch that movie. I
0: mean, that's about as cut and dry as you can. I know, but like disagree because like watch that first scene in the diner. It is such a Tarantino movie. By the point where Mickey and Mallory are meeting up with a Native American man and he's holding on to snakes and they're walking through snakes by then it's like, yeah, this is an Oliver stone movie, but that beginning section is so Tarantino to me. Certainly that first scene, it feels like it could be right at home in uh, kill bill or reservoir dogs.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. But um, natural born killers. I mean, why is it great? I think it's great because of one of the things I said earlier, which is welcome to the nineties. When you watch that movie, it feels like all of those things happening at once. It's, The idea of the entire nation watching a celebrity on TV all day, every day on trial for murder and then making celebrities out of other murder. Oh, wait, we don't have any other celebrity murderers. Well, then let's make murder celebrities. You know, and then I know you love the animated portions of Natural Born
0: Killers. Oh, I do. We haven't even talked about, like, the formatting. Okay, let me just explain for anybody who who doesn't know. Holy shit, this has, like, every different medium you could possibly think of uh, has gone into this. And I feel like people loved criticism at this, like... As if Oliver Stone was like, I can't decide on one, so I'll just go with all of them. Because there's animated segments that I adore and have loved since I was a kid. Uh, we go black and white, the aforementioned 50s sitcom style. There's Super 8 film. There's like 16 millimeter. There's obviously regular 35 millimeter. I think there's maybe only one scene in the entire movie that doesn't cut to some other sort of medium within the scene. And that's the scene where Mickey and Mallory are standing on a bridge marrying each other. With their weirdo snake rings. Uh, I believe that was the only scene that never cut to black and white, <laughs> that never cut to any other. Like, there's a lot of times where we kind of see their inner thoughts by cutting to characters just on a black background with either green or red lighting. I think a lot of those shots are representing, like, the demon inside Mickey. Uh, There's a lot of times right before he does a violent act, it'll cut to somebody like the devil inside him, basically screaming out in a rage, and then he will execute that rage. But it's a fascinating movie because of that. And I think that, yeah, maybe people didn't like it because it was so all over the place in terms of how it was made. But I think that that is a virtue and not a criticism. The creativity and the vision required to execute that it's just mind blowing to me, like all the different mediums that he was going to bring into that. I mean, that takes a, like it's that a real vision.
1: Well, yeah, it absolutely does. It is a literal, it is a metaphorical pastiche. It is pastiche at its very core. Uh, it is a combination of all of these like disparate presentations of a visual medium. And uh, again, it's, you're taking the Jerry Springer show and you're taking image comic books and you're putting them in a blender. And again, I go back to, this movie is like fucking a pig. And that's the way it feels. And it's funny that you mentioned the the bridge scene. I feel like that scene, despite the fact that it doesn't have all the weird uh, ch- artistic choices, would heavily influence Rob Zombie's aesthetic. Oh, for I, sure. I feel like that moment of like, oh man, it, it, it's deep and it's dark and it's dirty. But in all of your grunginess and your filth there's a certain freedom there and what does freedom feel like to rob zombie on film it feels like blue skies and wind in your hair and and that's what i think oliver stone does a nice job of a balancing act in this movie too is while he does not celebrate mickey and mallory i think he celebrates the freedom that Mickey and Mallory have, he certainly forgives them. I will say that much. He forgives them. They were created, and that's what Oliver Stone. Another thing that is that is prevalent in these movies is, is how he forgives people. He forgives Nixon for fuck's sake. He forgives W. Uh, he forgives Oswald. Like I mean, he gives. He forgives Mickey and Mallory, and he says that the cycle of violence is a real thing. We are all. Monsters of one Frankenstein or another
0: Absolutely Just real quick I wanted to mention Robert Richardson Somebody who looms large in film He's uh, the cinematographer for this movie Just because I wanted to point out that I know that he was uh, had done quite a few Movies with Oliver Stone Ultimately he did 10 of Oliver Stone's movies As uh, the director of photography But also funny enough that Quentin Tarantino Is brought up because he's done every Quentin Tarantino movie since Kill Bill he has shot each of his movies, so it's funny that this movie that Quentin Tarantino absolutely hates uh the cinematographer has been like his go to guy for the last uh you know twenty years. but yeah, you're saying that everybody's a monster. I think that's what freaked me out about this movie when I was a kid. I was probably like eleven or twelve by the time I saw this, so I had seen some <laughs> I was gonna say I had seen some shit. I had not personally seen some shit, but I had seen some <laughs> movies. That, about people who had seen some shit, so I felt like I was ready for it, and this movie freaked me the fuck out. It really got me to my core. I'm not a squeamish person, but definitely like just wanton violence just really tripped me out when I was young. Uh, Darren knows very much my two moments that really stick out to me are the beginning of Robocop, where that schmuck gets blown away by Ed 209, that Paul Verhoeven. Oh, they're both Paul Verhoeven moments, actually, come to think of it, where he gets just destroyed by Ed 209 for no reason. It's like, yeah, he's kind of an asshole. Then we <laughs> then we cut to uh, a few years later at Total Recall, where Arnold Schwarzenegger's character Quaid is running away from some bad guys, and he's going up an escalator. <laughs> and I'm laughing now, but this this really freaked me out when I was a kid. People start shooting at Quaid, and he just grabs this random guy on the escalator and uses him as a body shield. And this guy gets torn to fucking shreds from both directions. He's, like, using him in one direction, somehow kills those guys, turns them around, and the guy gets shot up more. It's, like, squib heaven. Like I said, <laughs> Paul, Paul Verhoeven knew how to use a squib, and that really freaked me out because this guy did literally nothing and got destroyed, got killed for no reason. Because of it. And I think that that carried over to the Mickey and Mallory of it because that act in Total Recall had no moral compass to it. There was no moral reasoning for it. That guy wasn't getting a comeuppance. He was just going home. He was going to go home and like pet his dog and like cook some ramen or something and, you know, enjoy a nice sitcom of some kind on the TV and and chat with his girlfriend. And, and uh, probably you know, not one. Probably not
1: one starring Rodney Dangerfield.
0: Not Definitely not one starring rd himself but instead that guy was just going home and he got fucking devastated so so that really uh, it was like wow there's no like morals to that and now we cut to natural born killers an entire movie that embodies that principle that they just kill people for no good reason just because they feel like it just as if like you know my version of that is like oh, am I going to go drive to Sherman Oaks to the tune of about 30 minutes to a cake place that makes only bunt cakes called Nothing Bunt Cakes? Am I going to go there just for the hell of it and go eat an entire cake by myself? Maybe. Maybe. That's because I got... (laughs) (laughs) Because I don't give a fuck about, I guess, my body or my health. But... (laughs) (laughs) But my my point is, Mickey and Mallory feel that way about human life, and that really freaked me out as a kid. And I think that's why this movie always stuck with me. It's always been something that, again, I felt like there were no morals involved in Mickey and Mallory's decisions, and especially by the time Robert Downey Jr. is joining in. And even I got a tinge of it watching it the other night where he starts firing a gun and shooting police officers at the the prison. I'm like, oh, God. Something about it just felt so wrong.
1: Well, dude, I mean— I think that that's Oliver Stone saying it doesn't have to be this way. Is this what our mainstream culture has become? Is this what America has become? You know, war is hell, right? To, To go back to Vietnam, you know, Marlon Brando says in Apocalypse Now, the horror, the horror. Should your daily life be like that? Should going out in public, should it be? fearing for one's life from the attack of a wild ass human being who doesn't give a shit about shit. And I think that that was Oliver Stone again, holding up a mirror and saying, let's quote another movie, the big Lebowski when Walter Sobchak says, this is not nom. There are rules. And I think that Oliver Stone is kind of trying to say that with natural born killers, which is this is not nom. And if you want to talk about nom, let's talk about my three movies about nom, but this is the real world. This is the United States. This is the 1990s. This is the girl next door. And this is the butcher. Like these are real people living in the real everyday world. And it's the horror, it's hell, it's the darkness.
0: Uh, I know we don't have to be sent halfway across the world to experience that nihilistic dread that Vietnam gave everybody. Uh, Like, yeah, it's right in our backyard. And that was very freaky but last couple thoughts on this like fucking an incredible cast Tommy Lee Jones basically warming up for Batman forever so over the top as uh, the <laughs> warden Dwight uh, again Robert Downey Jr. needlessly Australian but good as ever and uh, Woody Harrelson and Juliet Lewis are fantastic in this movie uh, oh, so charismatic okay. Oh and Tom Sizemore I can I can't not mention Tom Sizemore he is such a fucking loon he's so good
1: He is a complete loon and he is great and Woody Harrelson is great, but Juliet Lewis is the star of this movie. And I don't know. I mean, is was it written that way? Is it all her? Is it a combination? Whereas Mickey is, I mean, he's not, he's not two-dimensional. Don't misunderstand me, but he he's a mean mad man. He, you know, he is a man on a mission. And Mallory, however, is sort of a microcosm of. The of the whole story inside of the story because you see her as sort of this put upon young girl who is at least trying to represent something wholesome and virtuous, and yet you watch her corruption just bubble out of her. And it by the time she's in the prison, the vileness like she's so fucking vile. By the time the third act of this movie starts that it's like, God
0: damn. What's neat to me about her and Woody Harrelson, Woody Harrelson just seems like a wild animal controlled by impulse only. Whereas we see her, we see more of her origin story. Cause we don't, we see why she's so fucked up. We only get to see tiny glimpses of why Mickey is so fucked up for him. It's a compulsion to kill for her. It's like a choice. She's, sure it is, sure. Like, the best example being when she goes to the gas station and, and tries to get the guy to sleep with her and then she changes her mind and murders the guy. Killing is a choice to her and, and that makes Mallory such a more complex character and her and Pat Nixon are the two best, as far as I've seen, and again, I did not see Heaven and Earth, but two of the best represented like female characters in Oliver Stone's work. Juliette Lewis is fantastic there's so much to love about this movie highly recommend it we could talk about this for two hours but before we get into the main chunk of his filmography the the nom era if you want to call it that i want to talk a little bit about his latter days work uh last night i watched the movie snowden for the first time which is his most recent big release
1: okay let me just quickly say here uh to the listeners that i have not seen snowden uh, i was going to try and watch it and i couldn't bring myself to do it and i love oliver stone i probably will eventually see it but i didn't watch it so i can't speak to it
0: i will speak very little to it i think it's a. Uh, I told you before we started recording like like i said i watched it last night it's a solid like b probably a b minus maybe It's just, it does not have any of that Oliver Stone flair. It's saying a lot of the same things that we've heard from Oliver Stone before. It's all about Edward Snowden, who everybody should know. He worked for the NSA and CIA, and he eventually blew the whistle on them spying on Americans. So it's obviously a very anti-big government message saying that, you know, even though Bush started it, Obama continued it. So this is goes back to how he could piss off both sides. He's pointing the fingers at everybody but himself.
1: As we learn from the movie Nixon, it's not about the person. It's not about the party. It's the system.
0: And I think that's what trips him out in this. And Edward Snowden, again, is kind of your perfect Oliver Stone protagonist he's again somebody who just wants to do great things he wants to be the best he wants to help he also at the beginning of the movie enlists in the military and wants to be on those front lines but an injury keeps him from it much like uh, we'll get to Tom Cruise's character in Born on the Fourth of July but he's just a guy who starts out with great faith in our country and its institutions and by the end of it obviously is having to blow the lid off of it because he's lost his faith in it so for that like he is I could see why Oliver Stone was uh, had Gravitated towards Edward Snowden, the character and the man and the story, but it just wasn't a compelling movie. I feel like one of the worst things that ever happened to cinema was the computer (laughs) becoming such a big thing. Not only CG imagery is just, you know, too much, but so much of this movie is about computers and technology, and it's just shots of a guy typing at a keyboard and a bunch of characters on the screen that we don't know. Characters like on a computer screen, like numbers and letters on a computer screen that we don't actually know what any of it means because technology is so inherently uncinematic and now like it's hard to to justify putting two characters in the same room because we would just text each other. Or like you watch a mo- I mean 8th grade was a great movie that did texting very well and really handled the technology well but a movie like this where it's supposed to be a high-stakes drama but most of it is Edward Snowden on a keyboard it's just not uh super compelling but Shailene Woodley was good if not a typical uh Oliver Stone supporting female character who is basically just the wife or girlfriend who is there to uh, make sure that their man is pushed forward so he can be great basically she sacrifices everything to make sure that he's okay to go on and do great things So that's what I have to say about Snowden. Um, It's not a revelatory film by any means. And then I want to talk about briefly Alexander, which obviously you have seen and you love. I watched it. I
1: might be the only person. I might be the only person besides Oliver Stone who likes this movie.
0: Yeah, I think that might be true. I watched it back in 2004 when it came out. I watched it on DVD or Blu-ray and I was just confounded by the whole thing. And I'd forgotten this movie is like three and a half hours long because that was like my other choice of what to watch last night. And I was like, uh, three and a half hours of a movie I know I don't like or two hours and 15 minutes of a movie I probably won't like. Uh, so obviously I went with Snowden. But Alexander does fit in with that Oliver Stone lead trope. Uh, you know, a guy trying to be great, trying to reach for that brass ring. What do you think, Darren? I mean, what do you? why do you love Alexander, uh, just briefly? Well,
1: probably because I love Oliver Stone and I love Alexander of Macedon. The end. No, it's <laughs> it has a lot to do with that, though. I love this artist, and I love his subject. So a movie about Alexander the Great by one of my favorite film directors, unless it's complete shit, I mean, I'm going to like it. Well, I don't think it's complete shit. I don't think it's shitty at all. A lot of the criticism about uh, Alexander is valid. Even if the perspectives uh, of the critics of this movie... Is bias it's still valid from their perspectives and the reason I say that is this is a movie that was attacked by uh, the Greek people at large they thought this movie was very anti (laughs) Greek or anti Hellenistic and I I don't see it historians all over the world take exception to this movie historians from the West historians uh, from the Middle East, historians from the subcontinent, are very quick to criticize Alexander for saying, this is not what Persian people look like. This is not what Persian armies fought like. This is not their weapons or their clothing or anything.
0: Well, Lotto of- is one to pick and choose the facts that he wants to put forward. And uh-huh. What you're mentioning is more like costume and and it's all, it's not really events.
1: No, it's all of the above because the, the costuming and the artistic choices, set dressing, so to speak, it goes hand in hand with the, the actual events of the movie that comes under fire. So frequently from historians who say that uh, the movie Alexander totally misrepresents the conquests of Alexander of Macedon. well, you could make 10 seasons of hour-long episodes of an Alexander the Great series, and in that way only could you tell about you know, the background of his father, Philip II, how Alexander rises to power, how he finally defeats the Persians, something the Greeks could never do, how he moves into the Mesopotamia and Egypt and then into India. Okay, those are not simple or short stories to tell and three and a half hours might be a long time to sit in a movie theater or to, to sit in front of your Blu-ray, but it's not a long time to tell the, the true history of Alexander the great. So it was a snapshot three and a half hour long snapshot, but it was still a snapshot. Uh, but the criticism that came from, from the Greeks primarily focused on the, the, Sexual identification of Alexander the Great. Well, it is a matter of historical fact that most Greeks were bisexual. They lived their lives.
0: That was just a social practice. Now, remind me. Remind me. I have the vaguest of memories. So Angelina Jolie plays his mom. Is he fucking his mom in it? I can't remember. No, he's not fucking his mom. Um,
1: is there any implication that he's fucking his mom? No, there is implication that his mother would totally fuck him. Are um, you
0: sure he wasn't fucking his mom? I'm
1: think, pretty sure he was. I think I just want to see
0: mom. a sex scene between Angelina Jolie and Colin Farrell, apparently. That just seems like just what I want. Well, I mean, you get lots of naked <laughs> Rosario Dawson growling, which is, you know, not the worst thing in the world. Now, in that scene, I remember that scene, <laughs> shockingly. <laughs> where they're growling at each other and is it like cutting to lions and stuff like the usual oliver stone like quick cuts to other things Darren shaking well, his head yes sure. okay so in that scene this is going to sort of bridge me to our next movie a little bit in that scene is she completely naked and he's still wearing like a loincloth or something uh yeah for the most part oliver stone loves doing that in movies because the next movie we're going to talk about also has a scene where a woman is 100% not a stitch on her and then the guy is running around mostly naked but still covering up his junk. And I feel like by 2004, we had gotten used to seeing dicks on film. So, I mean, not to say that Colin Farrell is like open to like letting it all hang out, but like he should have just let it all hang out at that point. Am I right? I'm playing the part (laughs) of Lindsay Calhoun Bring now advocating for more dicks on film is ultimately
1: what I'm saying. I I mean, I don't know. I know that Alexander would
0: probably have been naked a whole lot. Yeah. Uh, Do you think Alexander the Great, the real man, do you think he was well endowed? (laughs) I don't fucking know. I don't know. Is there a historical record of his wanger? Not that I know of. No. Because at least that could have been, maybe that was a point of historical accuracy that Oliver Stone was like, ah oh, man, I really wanted him to be naked here, but I heard, I read in a book somewhere that dude was packing heat, and my boy Colin over here, his little guy's a little shy, so we can't do that. So we better cover it up. I'm just thinking, you know, I'm just wondering what it was like on the day. Was so, all are you stone. telling so,
1: so you're telling me you know for a fact that Colin Farrell is not packing heat?
0: It could have been cold. Sets but get now cold. you sound
1: like you were there. You, now you sound like you were there. I said it could have been cold. So you have you, you been me.
0: on a soundstage before? Uh, probably. No, no, I don't no? guess no? I have. Did you, did you go don't. on a soundstage at any point out here? I, I, probably, I probably dragged you onto a soundstage uh, in one of your visits out here. But those MFers are cold as hail. So <laughs> I would imagine my boy CF, Colin Farrell, was like, I might – uh, wait—he's Irish. He's oy. not Australian. <laughs> oi, oi, oi! Uh, look at the Irish show. Oh, huh? I don't want to be little Wenger out there. This is all very good content. Anyway, uh, sorry to to get off on that, but I really just got my my mind reeling. Historical accuracy is what I'm thinking about, and as it regards to Alexander's uh, wiener, you're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome, historian. Sorry to interrupt all your actual thoughts.
1: I, I think that what Oliver Stone did with the Alexander film is fine. I don't know what the critics of that movie want.
0: Any last thoughts on Alexander before we move on? And if they have anything to do with his dick size, we can talk longer. They,
1: apparently you want to talk longer about dick size.
0: <laughs> um, well, you, know.
1: you want to talk longer dick size. Hell um, yeah. I mean, I don't know. You would have to ask many of his... Many many on screen lovers in this film. Oliver Stone did just cast the prettiest boys of the early twenty first century. Oh yeah, because Jared Leto's so,
0: buddy slash lover, right?
1: Yeah, Fastian. and Jonathan Rhys Meyers is. Uh, oh shit, I forgot in. he was in it. And I mean Colin Farrell all by himself, you know. Yeah. And then and then you and then yeah, but there's no shortage of beautiful women as well. Rosario Dawson, Angelina Jolie, and of course this is val kilmer a little you know he's a little bit older but val kilmer in the role as philip ii alexander's father and not to be offensive but this
0: is fat val yes i don't know that he was fat but but he was on his way to fat Val. i just remember because val kilmer was like you know talk about a beautiful man and i guess we could use this as an opportunity to get into our next film unless you have something really pressing to say about alexander
1: No, I just, uh, in closing about Alexander, Alexander is going to actually play into the next movie that we talk about, which will be The Doors. Yes. I mean, Alexander the Great is one of Oliver Stone's heroes. So is Jim Morrison. Well, Alexander the Great is one of Jim Morrison's heroes. And again, I think that you see, you see this pop eating itself, which is that it's like one fish eating another fish and then getting eaten by another right. fish. I saw that scene
0: in the phantom menace on Naboo. <laughs> <laughs> and when they I left the that... Gungan city and we're going to the surface and a bunch of bigger and bigger fish. And I believe Liam Neeson said the great line, there's always a bigger fish. Sure. Now, now that's I mean, good uh, filmmaking. That's, that's the real ass shit right there. If you ever do a here's why George Lucas is great. i uh, count me out, please. Yeah, I mean, not, not you know, the guy did give us Star Wars, so there's something to be said there. But he also gave us Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace. So.
1: I was about to say he gave us Star Wars, but he also gave us Star Wars. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so anyway, Alexander is is a problem. Was he a tyrant? Was he a brute? Was he totally and violently self-absorbed and a, a destructive force? that is a matter of great debate but to make an omelet you gotta crack a few eggs and uh, you know Alexander wanted to rule the world you're gonna step on some toes you're going to have to to lob off some heads and Alexander actually did on an extremely grand scale what a lot of Oliver Stone's protagonists do
0: which is ruffle feathers you know they start some shit and the man himself Oliver Stone Uh, but if you want to talk about self-destruction and that desire to, like, basically conquer the world, you're talking about the subject of our next film, The Doors. You're talking about Jim Morrison, uh, which really should have been the name of this movie because The Doors themselves are uh, hardly a factor in the overall tale that's told here. This is this is Jim Morrison's movie, 100%. This is definitely not one of Oliver Stone's best movies. He works in most of his stylistic... Fetishes here. <laughs> lots of kooky cuts, lots of fast cutting, lots of cutting other subjects in, giving it a dreamlike quality, which is, it feels like you're on acid when you're watching this movie. But obviously this movie is all about uh, The Doors, the famous band from the 1960s and 70s. Uh, but mostly it's about Jim Morrison, the man behind most of the door's greatest songs and basically his self-destruction like his his quest to to die young and as we all know he succeeded
1: jim morrison definitely succeeded in destroying himself dying uh, in paris at the age of 27 and as really anybody that knew jim morrison tells it and as oliver stone tells it morrison willed willed this death he guided his own prophecy so let's talk about the criticism. Why why do people hate the Doors movie? Why do people criticize Oliver Stone for the Doors? Well,
2: well who first hates of all, the
0: Doors, but the Doors themselves. Exactly,
1: exactly. Doors keyboardist Ray Manzarek says the Jim Morrison that I knew was not on screen. Drummer John Densmore of the Doors says the movie is based on the myth of Jim Morrison. Manzarek goes on to say that a third of this movie is fiction, and then in particular, Patricia Keneally who was the wife of Jim Morrison, not the legal wife of Jim Morrison, but uh, the married in the Wiccan tradition wife of Jim Morrison. You mm-hmm. mentioned a
0: uh, nude woman running around with him uh, in a loincloth. Who right, a, right. Who was a journalist slash witch.
1: Right, a journalist slash witch. The real Patricia Keneally is in the movie. She plays the high priestess that marries the on-screen Patricia Keneally to the on-screen Jim Morrison. She was also a consultant on the film, but apparently she hated the portrayal of herself and she felt totally betrayed by Oliver Stone. I will say this. This is going to, I really think, set the tone for discussing the rest of this movie and the rest of these movies. Keith Cameron of Q Magazine said of The Doors that it is a self-important director's turgid attempt to make grand statements about America. Wow. Wow. Uh, wow. That's pretty damning. <laughs> I mean, uh, thanks Keith, uh, Mr. Cameron, if you're nasty and apparently <laughs> you nasty as hell, brah, yeah. because that is mean. That is mean
0: AF. I mean, at this point, I, I will say that the doors besides Snowden doors was the movie that I liked watching the least out of everything. I do agree with the Ray Manzarek's, what he said about how, how this is a movie not about Jim Morrison, but about the myth of Jim Morrison. Because I told you on the phone the other day, Darren, you were like, well, why didn't you enjoy that one? And I said that like when we meet adult Jim Morrison, when we see Val Kilmer for the first time on Venice Beach, he is already fully formed. He is Jim Morrison as we know him and love him and we never get to see any kind of interior life we never get to see the other side which is usually what biopics are all about is we always see the the performer and then we get to finally see the other side of the coin who was the man behind that those performances and the man behind the myth but we never get to see behind the curtain it's always you know the wizard of oz and that kind of left me cold because I craved gaining some sort of insight about Jim Morrison the man Uh, I craved anything about any of the other people in his life because we got to know superficially everybody else uh, certainly the members of the band Uh, like for instance this may have been the actual story behind him saying I'm the lizard king I can do anything but he just like says it out of nowhere uh, in front of a crowd before performance at some club on Sunset Street. I think, like, it's, the, I think it's the Whiskey. The Whiskey Go-Go. Uh, yeah, he just climbs on a on a car and just says it. And it's with no nothing that inspired it or no reason behind it. And nobody questions it. Everybody just cheers. And it's like, sure, we all know that that's the famous thing that he said. Like, we all know that statement. But I never got a sense of like, where that came from why did he say that and i mean sure a lot of it is just like oh, yeah a lot of drugs you know acids a hell of a drug or cocaine's a hell of a drug or it's booze or whatever but do you see what i'm saying like i completely understand what you're saying i'm not craving
1: that thing you could read a book to find out that thing yeah but that um, takes all Oliver like so Stone is <laughs> Oliver Stone is a storyteller he is a mythmaker and Jim Morrison was a mythmaker. Nobody self-mythologized like Jim Morrison. There's a great scene in the movie where the doors are boarding a plane, and there's like a documentary filmmaker who's asking everybody as they're boarding the plane, name and occupation. And they're like, Oh, I'm John Dinsmore. I'm a percussionist. It gets to Jim Morrison, and the filmmaker says, name and occupation. He says, Jim. I mean, fuck me running. That is some brilliant shit right there. I mean, that's and good. That's yeah. Jim Morrison saying that's all that fucking matters. I'm Jim. And Oliver Stone is saying Jim matters. And that the self mythologizing is okay.
0: But that's like, where that's where I'm going to actually agree with the critic from earlier. The one that I was saying probably was craving that reality of you know an Altman or a, an Allen film. There was zero reality. It was all artifice like the whole performance. And that is not to take a single thing away from Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer truly embodied the performer that was Jim Morrison. But I just feel like ah, I just wanted a little something, a little glimpse behind that curtain. I wanted a little bit of the man behind the myth, but that's not the film we got.
1: I understand that. I understand that. It's not the film that you've got. And I'm just trying to say you do actually get to see, you get to see that, uh, that Jim was broken by a vision that he had the whole indian thing which has been made light of so much that you almost forget uh, the potency of the original imagery present in this film is i know
0: that's something we can say about a lot of oliver stone material is it got endlessly parodied wayne's world did it in uh wayne's world 2 i believe where they uh were constantly seeing a native american man obviously the back and to the left from jfk so i'm just saying that like yeah a lot of what I'm seeing now and if you certainly if you watch it today having never seen any of these movies before it'll be like Lindsay's experience for the first time watching Star Wars because she had seen spaceballs a hundred times before seeing Star Wars so you're seeing the mockery before you're seeing the original and so you can't you retroactively can't take anything seriously in it so sure this movie definitely seemed like the movie where it's all of uh, Oliver Stones like pet fetishes. Because Vietnam's like a specter over the whole thing. I believe at one point, like, you know, JFK comes up. Obviously, because of Vietnam, Nixon comes up. Native American mysticism is certainly a oh, huge factor. Dude. Alexander Win- the Win- Great factors in. It's just like, it's just a giant Oliver Stone stew. And like bites of it can be really delicious, but some bites are a little sour.
1: Okay. I, I definitely disagree here. See, I, again, when I'm talking about potency, this is a potent stew. And every bite is rich. It is absolutely, you say overstuffed, but I say rife with allusion and with vitality and with a message. When Jim Morrison is showing his film, uh, his short film, when he's at UCLA and everybody shits all over it. Jim Morrison in that film quotes Friedrich Nietzsche and he says, the world is the will to power and nothing besides. All right. The reason this jumps out at me is because I am into Nietzsche. Uh, I mean, and I certainly if of more than any quote ever, the whole idea of the will to power because that means that we are all driven by a quest for power. The world is the will to survive. And if you are surviving, you will naturally exploit another. And naturally exploiting another means harming another. And suddenly you become the evil one. And who thinks they're evil? Fucking nobody. Jim Morrison doesn't think he's doing wrong. Jim Morrison thinks that he is willing himself to power. He is moving in circles of getting his message out. I think that one of the most brilliant moments is when he says that Vietnam, it is a time to fight or to fuck. And of course, that makes me think of Brian K. Vaughan saying that the opposite of war is fucking in the comic book saga. You know, I think that that is a nice little uh, whether it was deliberate, or whether it was intentional or not. To what Jim Morrison is saying is living is fucking fucking is creating and if you're living if you're fucking you're telling a story and that is the aspirational nature of oliver stone's protagonist and that's what jim morrison is trying to do and morrison acknowledges that this shit is corrupted that instead, excess has become the American way. Not truth, but filling a void. In the movie, Oliver Stone has Jim Morrison say, the people want something sacred. Instead, for Jim Morrison, life became a joke that he says God played on him. So when Morrison says the people want something sacred, they don't want the corrupt country they've been given. And that is what Oliver Stone is presenting here, is he's using Jim Morrison's own self-mythologizing to further mythologize who Jim Morrison is? And he was showing elements of of,
0: of the American population that things were fucked, man. Ah, man! I really wish you uh, had some strong opinions on this movie. It's making it really tough. <laughs> To do this podcast. I mean, if, I think if you
1: want to get, if you want to get even heavier for a second, Morrison reads his poem ode to LA while thinking of Brian Jones deceased. And he starts talking, I mean, this is based, these are, these are Shakespearean illusions. You know, he's talking about, uh, a dying King Hamlet fatherless talk about myth-making you're, you're making ties to Hamlet and a dying King. Uh, in JFK, Oliver Stone has Jim Garrison, the DA from New Orleans, doing the exact same thing, referring to a dying king. Now, of course, Garrison's talking about Alfred Lord Tennyson, and in his poem, The Mort Arthur," the death of King Arthur, and he's the dying king, the dying king of Camelot. As Garrison says, uh, quoting Tennyson, authority forgets a dying king. Morrison's talking about Brian Jones. So Jim Morrison is mythologizing the, the deceased Rolling Stones member. And that's where I'm saying America does that. Why why does anybody make a hero out of Jim Morrison? You know, why criticize Oliver Stone for doing it? It was already done. Jim oh, did it to
0: himself. I and know. the generate his but, and his generation did it to him. I don't want to belabor this whole back and forth. Obviously you have very strong feelings on this movie. I just feel like it's a little superficial. And I know that like you're bringing a lot out of your examination of the movie and I and I respect that, but I think ultimately cinema is about, you know, supposed to be about an exploration of like finding truth in humanity. And I feel like that's the one thing that we're missing. Is the truth of Jim Morrison's humanity? Now, is he exploring other larger things with Jim Morrison? Absolutely. You spoke much in the way Jim Garrison finishes out uh, JFK, a long, uninterrupted monologue laying yourself bare. But The Doors has a lot going on. I feel like you're, everything you just said honestly makes me want to re-examine the movie. Maybe I was taking it too superficially and I was just watching it on the surface. And I think I just lost the thread of like who the man is. I know I'm taking away from it. I know I'm detracting from it. But I think there is a whole lot to love and a whole lot to chew on. And that kind of goes back to what we were saying about Oliver Stone always being the guy who stuffs everything he can into each of these things. This is him swinging for the fences once more. And uh, what is a biopic? Could have been a very middle-of-the-road thing where it's like, now we watch them right, Light My Fire. Now we watch them right, L.A. Woman. Now he's drinking a lot. Now he's dead. Like This could have been... Uh, Walk the Line or Ray. I think those are fine movies, but I don't think that they're incredible. They're not like trying to truly say something the way that maybe this movie did.
1: I think Oliver Stone is trying to tell the story that Jim Morrison was trying to tell that got cut tragically short by his own self-destruction. Sure. We can sit here and we can turn a biopic into a fucking clinical procedural documentary but i don't really give a sh- like we see that one time we see robbie krieger riding light my fire and it's the worst part of the movie because it's like uh, okay
0: yeah it's i very, mean
1: we've been there done that for sure right been yeah and if i want to listen to the song i'll listen to the song you know and i think that that is why the movie is so good to me is plenty of people will criticize Jim Morrison. They'll say he was a shitty singer. He was a city shitty, shitty songwriter. He was an even shittier poet, but you can't criticize Oliver Stone for telling Jim's story.
0: Uh, speaking about all the myth making, the one myth that Oliver Stone has contributed very largely to is the JFK myth, uh, which I think leads us into our next couple of movies. JFK and Nixon now JFK is actually the reason we are doing this podcast in the first place when I reached out to Darren about doing an episode JFK was his first suggestion and I said well that movie was nominated for best picture it made a ton of money it's actually pretty critically acclaimed And then that's when Darren said, let's do Oliver Stone's whole body of work, because there's certainly a lot of ups and downs to go there. And I jumped on that opportunity. But the fact of the matter is, JFK is one of your all time favorite movies. Right, Darren? Uh, Absolutely. JFK is my third favorite movie of all time. And Uh, uh, I know what one and two are but what are your number one and two favorite movies?
1: Well, my number, my favorite movie of all time, my number one favorite movie of all time is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Hell yeah. The the New Line Cinema Production, the OG, the original. It was the first time that the Ninja Turtles went to the silver screen, and it was special film to me
0: then, and it never stopped being a special film to me. I think... I mean, you want to talk about 1980s New York realness. Go to that movie. That's like, that's kind of like the pinnacle to me of 1980s New York realness.
1: Well, you mentioned earlier about Wall Street being that New York realness, and that's totally true. I think that Wall Street, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and Ghostbusters, and it's like, don't
0: go to New York. (laughs) Yeah, I know. You will get mugged and killed by some supernatural force or Gordon Gecko,
2: one or the other.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, Gordon Gecko. Is a supernatural force.
0: That's for sure. A force of nature.
1: A torta force. Uh, he, well, he is all of the above. That's Gordon Gecko for you. Yeah. But my second favorite movie of all time is *The World According to Garp*. Ah, uh, good one. Uh, yeah, starring Robin Williams in, I believe, his second feature film role. And that's, uh, that's actually nuts to me. Oh, I know. That's crazy. And also the the debut, the feature film debut of Glenn Close. And what so- really? Yeah. What a monumental movie. And uh, But that movie is amazing. John Lithgow, Amanda Plummer, uh, that movie is absolutely brilliant. And based on the John Irving novel, uh, which is my second favorite book of all time, and my second favorite film of all time. So, uh, you know, I, at least I'm consistent in that respect. So JFK it's just
0: not quite good enough. What, what's your favorite book of all time?
1: My favorite book of all time is Franny and Zooey oh, okay,
0: by J.D. Yeah, Salinger.
1: Which... I thought was the the coolest thing I'd ever read when I read it. And I realized that kind of makes me a little basic here. (laughs) Like everybody's got a copy of that. Of course, everybody I know has a copy of it because I gave it to them. I I definitely read it because of
0: you uh, and I quite enjoyed it. I still have a copy you gave me, which is inscribed in the other room. I believe Lindsay also got a copy from you, which we have. She in turn gave you Perks of Being a Wallflower, which is I believe her favorite book. Going back to saying that you're basic, no judgment here. I think you know my favorite movie is Jurassic Park. So <laughs> well, yeah, definitely you mentioned no that earlier. For, yeah, no, no judgment for being basic. Believe me, I do
1: not give a shit. But uh, JFK, third favorite movie of all time, so it's definitely my favorite Oliver Stone film, which means that I have watched it way too many times. I think uh, the other day when you and I were talking, I, I mentioned that uh, – I watch the movie at least quarterly, if not monthly, and I have for 20 years. It's just, it's a really, really amazing film. It, to me, it's Oliver Stone
0: at his best. It's also Oliver Stone at his perceived worst. That is true. Uh, this is actually kind of like a good point where i believe this is the turning point in oliver stone's career where uh, if i'm not mistaken this might be his highest grossing uh worldwide picture out of everything that he's done but this is definitely where the conspiracy theorist the uh as you called him earlier a traitor oliver stone starts to rear his ugly head and i feel like this is a turning point in his career uh in terms of the public eye and critical consensus because this is when things sort of took a downward turn from here this is towards the end of his heyday uh but the movie is about uh jim garrison who is the uh a da of new orleans parish He finds some local connections to the JFK assassination, which very much rocked him when it happened, as it did everybody in the country. And he goes on a quest to find out the truth and to actually indict somebody for the assassination of JFK. He finds a local businessman named Clay Shaw, who was, in his mind, connected to the assassination, part of a conspiracy. And so what unfolds is Jim Garrison unveiling uh, the conspiracy And I think one of the big criticisms of the movie is that it's the facts that Oliver Stone chooses to portray, and it's very much Oliver Stone's, like, stamp saying, here's what happened in his opinion, Uh, which is fine, which I think, you know, it's not the only film to do that. Like, Zodiac is another movie that puts a stamp saying, not definitively, like, here is the guy who did it, but It's a filmmaker saying, here's who I definitely think did it, and it's up to you to decide. But I think 1991, if a movie got made, people took it as gospel, and I think that's where people got upset.
1: Well, okay, Uh, absolutely. Two things. One, he did that, yeah, sure. You're allowed to do that. It's his fucking movie. He got it greenlit. He got it budgeted. He got it cast. He shot it. He wrote it. You get to do that. You get to do that. However, I think the the biggest problem is what you said, which is it was put on the screen and therefore people bought it as the 100% truth. If you spent five minutes researching who Oliver Stone is and you realize this was based on a book written by Jim Garrison, right? So Oliver Stone is making a movie about Jim Garrison based on the story of Jim Garrison as told by Jim Garrison. So it's not a story stretch to think that it's going to be one-sided and biased. That's plain and simple. I'll be the first to admit, 1991, I'm 10 years old when I see this movie for the first time, and I accepted it as the gospel truth. I was in college before I second-guessed anything. The movie JFK was the story to me, and when Clay Shaw, spoiler alert, is found not guilty of part of a conspiracy to assassinate the president, I thought that was wrong. I thought that was truly wrong that Jim Garrison had found the path to the president's assassins. And there were no two ways about that. And it took me a long, long time to get away from that and realize that I can still love this movie. And I do still love this movie, but I got to love it as a piece of art,
0: not necessarily as a true depiction of actual history. Right. And that's the thing is like, as a movie, It cooks, man. The theatrical cut is about three hours long. I think like three hours and eight minutes long. And it moves. It is not a movie that lags. I think Oliver Stone once described his own movies as like, you basically you don't get a chance to get bored by the time your mind might start to drift, something new, something crazy is happening at every turn. So it just keeps you engaged the entire time. And this is one of a a really good case of the kind of movie where the home life is just as interesting as the case. Uh, Maybe not just as interesting, but Sissy Spacek is like the perfect actress to pull off that role and make the home life much more compelling than... Than, uh maybe it had any right to be the case itself is very interesting it, mixture as always of different mediums of the uh the Zebruder film which plays very heavily and man uh how do you feel about that inclusion in the movie Darren because like me watching it a couple days ago it like made my stomach turn because it's the real ass thing that he was showing
1: um well I think that it was vital it was absolutely vital to the part of the film where Kevin Costner in the lead role as Jim Garrison shows the Zapruder film to the public's eyes for the first time ever. And that is true to fact. The first time the American public ever saw it were the people in the courtroom that day who saw the Zapruder film as a piece of evidence. And so I think it's really important that Oliver Stone showed that because for that moment, you, the, the watcher of this movie, get to be in that jury box that day in 1969, 67, 68, 69, something like that. And you're absolutely right to have that sinking feeling in your stomach. It's not a movie. It's not special effects. It's not creature effects. This is real life. Yeah, it, is, you know, uh, for- uh,
0: Our president's brain's getting blown out, and they show it a lot. And yeah, and most people... repetitions nev- what finally made my stomach churn.
1: Oh, sure. I, I totally get it. Most people will never, ever see someone die that way. John F. Kennedy's murder might be the only murder most human beings ever witness in their whole lives. I know that when I showed the Zapruder film to my class... And I show it to my U.S. history students every year. I draw the shades. I turn the lights out. You know, YouTube has excellent, cleaned up, stabilized versions of the Zapruder film. And you can just watch it. And the kids are sitting there. And strangely enough, I mean, I was well-versed in the Zapruder film by the time I was 10 years old. But When I'm sitting there with these 16 and 17-year-olds who are here living in the second decade of the 21st century, they've never seen the Zapruder film. So I get to watch these kids watch it for the first time. And every class, every year, the moment of the kill shot, that gasp. I mean, those kids suck the air out of the room. That's what happened in that courtroom. And that's why Oliver Stone included it. I think it's a brilliant, it is a, an essential choice for Oliver Stone to include the Zapruder film. Here. Oh
0: yeah, you can't do it and you can't like recreate it and get the same impact. Uh, there's obviously a lot of Dealey Plaza recreated in the film. A lot of the day of happenings recreated in the film, which were I'm sure very meticulously researched. But that was the one thing that you can't fake. And I think that that was a, a smart choice on his part, if upsetting, because again, as I, as I <laughs> disclosed earlier, I get upset when I see people getting shot on film, and just knowing that that was not a visual effect was pretty wild and pretty gut wrenching, and uh, and I mean, in the moment too, just narratively, like this is the moment where he starts to get some headway in the case, and people start to pay attention to him, because at this point he's just a crackpot. And once people see the film, I think that's when the case starts to turn for him. Obviously they don't win, but I think it made the most progress for them. Shit. I watched that and I'm like, "Eh, there's no fucking way that one person did that. Watching the film yourself, watching it all play out in front of you. What are your theories on what happened? (laughs) Should I open that can of worms? All right.
1: So starting at the age of 10, I hashtag in Oliver Stone, we trust, um, I believed Oliver Stone's version for probably 10 years from the first time I saw it well into my college years, um, at which point I began to do a lot of research as dictated by his history professors uh, when I was you know, in my major in college, as well as a lot of independent research. And I read a lot of books about the Kennedy assassination, a lot of books about Oswald, but it was not until honestly, I guess about 10, 11 years ago, I read a book by Gerald Posner uh, called Case Closed. And when I read that book, I could not believe the fact that Posner had convinced me that Lee Harvey Oswald was in fact the lone gunman. And uh, and that's why his book was called Case Closed. Uh, It definitively answered, uh, addressed, and responded to, and I believe shut down any and all conspiracy theories. And despite having believed my whole life that there was a massive conspiracy to assassinate John F. Kennedy. When I read Gerald Posner's book, I closed it on the last day of reading it and said, Holy shit. Oswald killed Kennedy. And only Oswald killed Kennedy. Wow! So that's
0: uh, could you remember? Like, a, is, is there any one detail, or I'm sure there's a lot to cover if it's an entire book. But
1: no, not any one detail. In fact, it is. It is simply it is the sum of its parts. Because again, Posner addresses absolutely everything. Uh, you know, because Jack Ruby is a main main part of the conspiracy and most of the conspiracies. Well, when Posner explains away absolutely everything about uh, jack ruby's life as a whole jack ruby's life in dallas jack ruby's life that month jack ruby's life the day of the assassination jack ruby's life the days in between kennedy's death and his and his murdering of oswald and then the actions of jack ruby the day he killed oswald there is absolutely zero to indicate any conspiratorial behavior on the part of Jack Ruby. And once you remove Jack Ruby from that, suddenly the idea of wiping out Oswald as part of a plan goes away. Oswald is truly a lone nut. He is a crackpot. And all of the things that were said about Lee Harvey Oswald by the Warren Commission and and many others, I sincerely believe are a hundred percent accurate. He spent his whole life being a little bit, a little bitch, and no one liked him, and he failed it. Is, he is failed in everything except said? assassinating the... <laughs> it's,
2: it's
0: the. Warren report like yeah? Lee Harvey Oswald yeah. was a little bitch
1: when Gerald Ford and Arlen Specter uh, sent uh, their reports to Chief Justice Earl Warren. It said, "Little bitch, Lee Harvey Oswald." But anyway, so let's get
0: back to yeah, back to the movie.
1: Yeah, no, totally. I think that one of the things that we got to mention about this movie is the casting. Uh, we've been talking about casting as being a strong point of Oliver Stone and Oliver Stone's movies. JFK is right there in terms of, holy shit. I mean, you got Kevin Costner at the height of his powers starring in this movie. Can
0: I Can I just, uh, for one second, I definitely want to talk about this cast, but let's just talk about Kevin Costner for one second. All while, right. while I was watching this movie, something curious hit me, which is... Okay, Kevin Costner is pretty good, right? Huge megastar. I think so. Huge megastar in the 90s. But the whole time I was like, is he good? Is he a good actor? And I thought, I don't think he's good. He looks good on screen. He's obviously like a tall guy, handsome, broad. But I was like, does Kevin Costner suck at acting? Is he bad? It's sort of like you putting down the book and realizing like Oswald did it. I was like- why is Kevin Costner a star why do we like him but I will say by the end of the movie I turned around and I was like I you know his final like 15 minute long monologue that he does at the end really turned me around that was quite an achievement but what, what I mean obviously you like Kevin Costner what's your opinion uh, what do you feel about him what do you and his acting ability.
1: I love Kevin Costner. (laughs) (laughs) Okay.
0: I absolutely love
1: Kevin Costner. God, I know we've talked about this dozens of times in our interpersonal phone conversations over the years, but I feel like we've talked about this maybe the last time I was on this show, how you and I liked Keanu Reeves through all of the doldrum years when no one liked Keanu Reeves. Hell
0: yeah. Love Keanu. Love me some Manu.
1: And I feel like Kevin Costner fits right into that category of these actors that were very, very big in the eighties and early nineties. And then people turned on them. They completely turned on them. And I think that that's what happened with Kevin Costner, but I never stopped liking Kevin Costner.
0: I was talking to Lindsay about it. I was like, I think Kevin Costner was offered the lead of every single film from January 1st, 1990 to December 31st, 1999. And after that, he had to fight for everything because, yeah, for whatever reason, by then, we just were like, man, fuck Kevin Costner. I can tell you why. It's the one-two punch of Waterworld and The Postman. But man, in those early '90s, that guy was riding high, and this was definitely a case of that. I think he's probably a big reason this movie was such a huge success.
1: Oh, I completely agree. Oliver Stone knew what he was doing when he put him in that role. That it's it's why Tom Cruise, who might not have been really the best choice uh, for Kovic uh, and Born on the Fourth of July, which we will get to, oh, yeah. believe it or not, Tom Cruise. You have to cast him in that time, in that place, in that role for that movie whether it really makes sense in the long term or not. Uh, Same with Kevin Costner and JFK. Now, my last two bits about, or my last one bit, I guess, about Kevin Costner personally is between JFK, Field of Dreams, Fandango, and uh, Perfect World. Oh, man. Love Kevin Costner.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I like low-key love him I guess I, I <laughs> but I still gotta da- I, I could still be like I think he's bad but you know Cameron Reeves objectively is bad in a lot of the things he's in like look at no further than Bram Stoker's Dracula he's terrible in that but I just love watching him in everything he does and that's all that matters man when everybody every, every
1: the, the answer that I hate always that I'm given anytime I'm like why does this thing exist and somebody invariably says money I mean, that, there you go. Kevin Costner, Keanu Reeves, Tom Cruise, Channing Tatum—they put butts in seats, and yeah. that's all Hollywood cares yeah. about.
0: Yeah, we'll talk about Tom Cruise later. I think Tom Cruise is actually an incredible actor, but we'll get to that later. Let's talk more about this cast because yeah, you're absolutely right. Let's just go back and forth. I'll run down. What are your okay? Uh, name one favorite, and then I'll name a favorite uh, of this cast.
1: Michael Rooker as yeah. one of as one of Jim Garrison's assistants.
0: Always excellent. Another one of the assistants who I didn't even realize was in this and loved was Laurie Metcalf.
1: Oh shit! Yeah, Laurie Metcalf as Susie, uh, who works for the is one of the assistant DAs. She is incredible. In yeah, this she's movie. great. Shit! Well, as long as we're in the DA's office, uh, Wayne Knight. Yes, Newman himself playing the character of Numa. By the way.
0: I know. I noticed that. That was hilarious <laughs> to me. I, I don't know the actor's name, but you probably have it in front of you. The guy who he goes up into the, the book depository and basically they try to shoot three times within the allotted time that the Warren Commission stated, the 5.6 seconds or whatever. That guy was great. I don't know that actor's name. He is incredible. Yeah. In sorry, to, sorry, folks, to not have it. Oh, by the way, one thing that we haven't even mentioned yet Is the fact that you and I traveled together, along with our good friend Jared, to Dallas one year and actually stood in the spot that JFK was shot.
1: Yeah, if anybody has never been to Dallas, Texas and visited Dealey Plaza, there is an X painted on the road where the presidential limousine was at the moment that the
0: kill shot hit John F. Kennedy. And that is some weird shit to stand oh, yeah. on that X. You, I had to like really, really talk you into it. You did not want to stand on that X. You were very resistant. I, of course, was like, "Sure, I'll go." Dur, 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 dur. I want to take a picture, <laughs> but you, yeah, you. I feel like you were spooked by it.
1: I most definitely am spooked by that. Uh, John F. Kennedy is like a god to me, and Lee Harvey Oswald is a looming specter to me. To, uh, to stand in that place at 34, 35 years old, however old I was, for the first time. Um, and really even, not just to actually physically be there, but even see different perspectives I'd never seen before in any documentary. That was incredible. That yeah. was truly strange.
0: It, it was very chilling to stand, at least on the side of the road, and point up and look at the window that Oswald was posted up in. That was Uh, fucking wild.
1: It is. Now, Oswald, there's a good one. Oswald, Lee Harvey Oswald, portrayed by Gary Oldman in the movie.
0: Oh, shit, yeah. He was so good. Uh, Another, really a surprise, and his, to my knowledge, only dramatic role, was John Candy as Dean Andrews. He is super fun in this movie.
1: He's really only got two scenes. He's, He's at a restaurant with Jim Garrison, and then he takes the stand. And the strangest thing is if you see pictures and you read transcripts of the real dean andrews. <laughs> John Candy nailed this part. Dean Andrews he's a professional. He's an attorney. You know, he he's pretty clean cut. He's a suit and tie kind of guy, but he always wore sunglasses day and night indoors and outdoors and he spoke in this weird like beatnik jazz Jargon, yeah, a lot everybody.
0: of a lot of dadios with him,
1: right? That is so interesting. And which that, I feel and like was... if
0: you if I turned in a script with dialogue like his, if I lifted dialogue, which obviously there's some creative license there, but I'm sure some of it was taken from transcripts. But I bet if I like put that into a script that I wrote today, I would come back and get noted and be like, nobody talks like this. Nobody has ever talked like this. Go fuck yourself.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, and John Candy is just a bit part. There's also bit parts by like. Kevin Bacon. Oh, he's great. Vincent D'Onofrio's got kind of a glorified t- cameo, the really.
0: tiniest part, yeah. He probably shot a half day on this. Obviously, uh, not talking about bit parts, but Tommy Lee Jones plays Clay Shaw himself. He's fantastic.
1: Uh, Brian Doyle Murray plays Jack Ruby.
0: Oh, right. Joe Pesci, one of my favorite actors, is uh, in it.
1: Joe Pesci as David Ferry. Oh my God, I'm a very small, Tiny, which they're Joe Joe Pesci, uh, bizarre, bizarre man suffered from alopecia and wore a notably awful wig and used uh, grease paint to paint these huge crescent moon eyebrows on his face. He had been uh, defrocked for being uh, gay. He died mysteriously. He had done cancer research in his home He had known Lee Harvey Oswald when Oswald was a child. The fact that he knew Oswald was true. The fact that he knew Clay Shaw was true. I mean, I don't think there was the conspiracy that Garrison says there was uh, and Stone says there was, but it's an awful lot of coincidences.
0: But, like I said, incredible cast, really well done. And the movie, I think it was at least uh, nominated if it didn't win for best editing, because I think the editing on this thing is sharp as a tack.
1: This movie cooks. Okay. So it's award winning, it made a lot of money, it stars a ton of famous actors, a lot of actors at the height of their careers. We talk about the fact that it's historically relevant. If controversial, it sounds like it was the best movie ever, but this is the movie for which I found the most criticism and some of the most biting criticism. I think we should share it at this time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Lay it on me, man. All
1: right. (laughs) All right. Dean Andrews, the Chicago Tribune says of JFK, it is an insult to the intelligence. That's it. That's how, that's how awful it is. George will of the Washington post called Oliver stone, a man of technical skill. Hey, all right. That sounds pretty good. Scant education and negligible conscience. Wow. Richard Corliss of time magazine, trying to be complimentary still stains his endorsement uh, of this movie with his choice of adjectives. When he said that Oliver stone's picture, JFK is in both meanings of the word sensational, sensational, jfk is sediciously enthralling oh all right so there you go time magazine is saying oliver stone is guilty of sedition he is yep. a traitor he's treasonous
0: this is the point where critics really started to turn on him and i think it's a lot to do with the implication that the government and lyndon johnson basically used the assassination for a coup d'etat and people did not take kindly to that
1: no 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 they most definitely did not it's uh, back into the realm of the critics of people that are actually supposed to be (laughs) criticizing critiquing films you got richard roper he called jfk utter crapola this film is an overblown vision of a parallel universe this is journalistically bankrupt nonsense ouch
0: yeah that's, that's all right pretty tough uh, you Vincent say Crapola, yes, Crapola. You know, I will give him points for this use of the word Crapola. So,
1: okay, if anybody knows who Vincent Bugliosi is, John? No,
0: who is Vincent Bugliosi? Okay.
1: He's the man who prosecuted Charles Manson. So he was an attorney. He worked in the DA's office of LA County for most of his career. He also was a true crime author and uh, sort of a lay historian, so to speak. He authored the book Helter Skelter about Charles Manson. Well, Bugliosi said of Oliver Stone's JFK that there are 32 distinct and separate lies and fabrications in the script alone. So that's pretty bad. But here's the worst. The worst actually comes from Jack Valenti, who at the time that this film was made was the president and CEO of the Motion Picture Association of America. Well, he outright denounced the film. He compares it to Lenny Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will. Yeesh. Yes, Valenti went on to call JFK equally a propaganda masterpiece and a hoax of a film.
0: Shit. Yeah, that's that's really that's rough. I think, again, I just keep going back to this, but this is the point where... Uh, the world at large kind of started to turn on him, ironically, because this is his most successful film financially. So a lot of people went to go see it. You know, despite all what they say, I think they really, like I said, take, took offense to the idea that our government would be so sinister to kill its own leader. Well, it, of course,
1: it, it presents the idea that the, the this country's government is suspect, that maybe it was Lyndon Johnson, maybe it was the CIA? Was it the mob? Was it Castro? Was it Khrushchev? Uh, Stone and clearly Jim Garrison did not believe it was only Lee Harvey Oswald. But again, it's the big picture here. It is Garrison and thus Stone trying to tell us to be careful who you put into authority. And once you've put them there, do not think them angels. The movie opens with President Eisenhower's speech when he left office and the, the famous military industrial complex speech the movie opens with Ike saying this is going to be a threat the movie closes with Oliver Stone putting on a title card what is past is prologue and this film is dedicated to the young in whose spirit the search for truth marches on now in the middle of the movie You've got Jim Garrison visiting the Lincoln Memorial. I mean, Abraham Lincoln is clearly a paragon of virtue to Oliver Stone. Mm -hmm. He has Garrison visit the Lincoln Memorial in JFK. He has Richard Nixon visit the Lincoln Memorial in the film Nixon. But beginning, middle, and end, Jim Garrison is saying, pay attention. And that's why it's great. I mean, here's why it's great. Oliver Stone has a message for you. He has a message for the American public if it was just lee harvey oswald then why why lee harvey oswald look at oswald's life why was he so pitiful how did the united states fail oswald how did the american family fail oswald and that's just if oswald was the problem yeah but but if it was not oswald if it was clay shaw who was revealed many years later to
0: have been a cia operative right which he denied you in know the trial and and I think I'm going to go back to uh, my girl Fiona Apple. What he's saying is this world is bullshit and it's failed all of us. But (coughs) that honestly could link us to our next topic, which is the film Nixon, which uh, I will say this is after the probably the zenith of Oliver Stone's both critical financial and artistic power. So I feel like it's on the other side of it. This is what I think is the end of his true heyday and uh, it is quite a film it's another three hour epic three hour plus epic isn't it like three and a half hours long something like that it is and I will say unlike JFK it felt like it was three and a half hours long I watched this the other day and it was the first time I had seen it and uh, I was surprised by a lot of things I was surprised by Stone's handling of the subject, but I also was not quite as drawn in as I was with JFK. Uh, I don't know if everything quite came together. I know, Darren, you'll probably have a lot to say about this film, because you've been trying to get me to watch it for years.
1: Well, I love this movie. This movie, in many ways, can be compared to JFK, but not for the obvious reasons. When you look at a director's filmography and you see films, JFK and Nixon, you go, oh, Oh, and then later W, you know, you're like, oh, this guy makes movies about presidents. And of course, JFK is not about JFK at all. It's clearly about the JFK assassination. Nixon, however, is just about Richard Nixon. And really, it's just about Watergate. But again, Oliver Stone distills it into this one moment, the moment of Watergate, and then uses that three and a half hours to say Watergate is a direct result of this man's presidency, which is a direct result of his ambition. It is a direct result of his hatred of the Kennedys. It is a direct result of the abuse of power by Lyndon Johnson, of Nixon's failure to win the election when he faced John F. Kennedy. It, Nixon had this very muddy past where he had always been a really, really dirty, dirty player in terms of politics, trying to uh, shame his political opponents. Embarrass, undermine, blackmail, because he thought he was not just the best man for the job, he was the only man for the job. And he had to do it because he always felt hated. And that's the message that I think Oliver Stone delivers in Nixon. This man had the potential to be a great man and a great president, but he was so corrupted by his own self-loathing, that he self-destructed. And he self-destructed over the course of an entire political career. It only came to a head with Watergate. And I think that that is really summed up in the moment where Oliver Stone has Paul Sarvino uh, in the role of Henry Kissinger saying, can you imagine what this man could have been had he ever been loved?
0: That was the interesting thing to me is this not exactly soft, but softer than I expected portrayal of this guy that, Oliver Stone clearly has hated he's been brought up so many times in other films by Stone as the villain he's the bad guy he's like the boogeyman and then we get to this movie as like oh shit here we go here's three and a half hours of let's show Nixon being a fucking creep and an asshole and we we do get those things too <laughs> however It shows into his past. It shows his brother dying, his mother putting all this pressure on him. For every bad characteristic of Nixon, I feel like he provides a bit of an answer for that. And that was what was surprising because that makes him ultimately a sympathetic character, which I just... And he did the same thing in W because we just expected Oliver Stone to shit all over George W. Bush in that movie and really and truly, he didn't. He wasn't completely flattering to both of these men, but yeah, I was surprised by the uh, the soft touch. And I just feel like he had a he was a three dimensional person and a well rounded character, which Oliver Stone could have gone another route with that.
1: He definitely could have, and one might, like you said, have thought that he should have or definitely would have, but he did not. And I think that the reason for that was not to soften who Nixon was, but to explain who Nixon was. Why do I think Oliver Stone is great? I think it's because Oliver Stone is honest, because Oliver Stone is not dishonest. He is not a liar. He might be sensational. I'll accept that in a heartbeat. But he is trying to portray humanity. If you look at Oliver Stone thematically, I mean, he, he looks at the, these ancient forces that move people and love and family and war and sex and parental relationships plays a huge part in explaining who Nixon is. Uh, Nixon says to his mother as a child, I am thy faithful dog. I mean, that shows that he was 100% Richard Nixon beholden to his mother and his mother who was fanatically outsider Christian uh, as a Quaker in Whittier, California. This woman, you know, reportedly spoke with these and thighs and and that sort of thing, you know, in the 20th century, even if it was early in the 20th century, is a little out of place. So I think that Oliver Stone portrays Nixon as being absolutely conflicted and uh, sort of disturbed by this odd devotional relationship that he was forced to have with his mother, and it created this sense of duty. We watch uh, Nixon experience the death of his younger brother from tuberculosis when they're children, and then witness the death of his older brother from tuberculosis when they're adults, Uh, at which point his mother, Hannah Nixon, says to him, God has chosen to take my children, but not you. You have been chosen by God for a purpose when you are told that sort of thing you can't help but act a certain way and nixon as his mother's faithful dog he says mother would expect no less from me than to win and that's what he was in it's what he was in it to do he was in it to win it
0: <laughs> and by any means necessary by
1: absolutely yeah
0: yeah so let's talk about uh some of the Aspects of this movie, like the, uh, again, killer cast. Anthony Hopkins plays yeah, Richard man. Nixon. Uh, great performance, even though, as I told you, Darren, I just never felt like he embodied Nixon. He didn't embody the physicality or the look of Nixon. It was basically Anthony Hopkins and a Nixon-ish hairpiece. But I do feel yeah. <laughs> like performance-wise, it was a fantastic performance. Of course, Anthony Hopkins is, uh, much like I said Martin Sheen was earlier, a world-class actor. Uh, he was very good in the role, but I think you told me at one point that nobody has ever looked like Nixon before or since but Richard Nixon, and that physical aspect just wasn't there in the performance, and you can't help that. That's fine because, obviously, Anthony Hopkins was never going to look like Nixon without like a full prosthetic mask, and that would have just been silly. It would have been silly, and it would have taken away from Hopkins' performance. Yeah. But uh, as his wife, Pat Nixon, one of the most well-drawn female characters, I feel like, in what I watched of Oliver Stone's work, Joan Allen is just phenomenal in this role. She's so good. She's drunk almost the entire movie. <laughs> and she's such a force of nature in this, to uh, go back to what I was saying about Gordon Gecko, She's great. And, uh you have more of stone's repertory players you got james woods in here you got john c mcginley in a tiny role at the very beginning uh he puts together a hell of a cast in this david hyde Pierce is randomly in it ed harris uh, and paul sorvino as henry kissinger you want to talk about like really disappearing into a role what a performance
1: oh that is one of the best parts of the movie paul sorvino as henry kissinger oh my god worth the price of admission Sign me up. Make make, make me a Henry Kissinger movie at that point with Paul Sorvino. Totally, totally believable in every possible way. I just want to second your praise of Joan Allen as as Pat Nixon. Uh, She does an incredible job, but the character of Pat Nixon and the real life Pat Nixon was forced to, and you'd be drunk too if you had been forced to be married to Richard Nixon. And if you tried to Uh, somehow be the most important woman in his life when his mother Hannah as portrayed by Mary Steenburgen in this movie Oh, something you could never do. You could never be more important to Richard Nixon than his mother was. And
0: she sure tried, but he I feel like he denied her at every point. She tried to give him the one thing, at least in this movie, and obviously they had children, so they had sex at some point. But it felt like to me she was trying <laughs> to give him the one thing that the his mother could not give him, which is physical love, and he turned her down every time. And he was always, you know, pushing her off like I'm not Jack Kennedy. I don't need that. And I was like, dude, just let her fuck you, man. Just like, seriously, just have sex with your wife. It'll be fun. Maybe you'll lighten up a little bit for a day or two, but no, he never let it happen. And I feel like that definitely put a strain on her.
1: Oh, it most definitely did. And here's the thing you you say, he's not, you you quote Anthony Hopkins as Nix and saying, I'm not Jack Kennedy. I think. Ke- the, the word Kennedy, the name Kennedy is said as many times in the movie Nixon as it is in the movie JFK. And that's because Oliver Stone taking absolutely from real life, Richard Nixon's utter hatred for the entire Kennedy family, which was very true and, and very hostile and dangerous. You know, he hated John F. Kennedy. He hated Robert Kennedy. He hated Ted Kennedy. He hated the whole family. I mean, to Nixon, the Kennedys were the problem with America, that the country club, the, the, uh, crew team, the yacht sailors, the, the Hamptons, the, those people, the Kennedys, right? <laughs> like Camelot was the problem. Camelot was what Nixon hated. And you get to see Nixon repeat it over and over and over again. One of the most interesting parts of the entire movie is after watergate has occurred and uh nixon is being investigated and and really it's everything's crumbling around him and there's these long scenes of nixon in a smoking jacket with a cocktail almost completely lying down in easy chairs near a fireplace and he's listening to tapes or he's burning tapes or this that and the other he's having a conversation with his chief of staff who's played by powers booth and anthony hopkins says nixon says, is it God or is it death? And and he's, and he's talking about what put him in that place. Was it God? Hannah Nixon, his mother, had said it was God, that God had chosen Richard Nixon to lead. And he'd always believed his mother, and he'd always believed it was his chosen path by God to be in that position. And I think that Oliver Stone makes it very abundantly clear that that is how Nixon felt. But when he asks, is it God or is it death? It's a beautiful look at the fact that Nixon is coming to terms with the fact that maybe it wasn't God. Maybe it was that looming specter of doom. Maybe it was the dark cloud of mortality that put Nixon finally in the White House. It took John F. Kennedy being assassinated. It took all the bodies of Vietnam and Lyndon Johnson's self-destruction to put Nixon in the White House. It took RFK being assassinated. So for Nixon to suddenly, again, soften a little bit in his hatred of the Kennedys to say, I finally succeeded. I finally beat the Kennedys because death robbed the world of these Kennedy brothers, and then and only then was Nixon able to rise to power. Maybe it wasn't God, maybe it was death. And that is so dramatic, I get it, but you know, I know, I've read the interviews, I've read all sorts of transcripts and autobiographies and memoirs and and conversations where Nixon is that dramatic. Oliver Stone gloms onto Nixon, Probably originally because he hated him, but then he probably started to identify with him because Nixon lived a melodrama.
0: And a melodrama is what I got in this movie, and I feel like maybe that's why I didn't take as much of a shine to it. But I think that you know everything that you're saying, I I, I agree with is high drama. And yeah, his obsession with the Kennedys was a, I guess his his wanting to be loved in the same way that the Kennedys were loved was really the most interesting thing about the whole piece about Nixon and his hatred of these people. His hatred of these people that he still wanted to be like, so in a way he kind of idolized them himself, which is, again, is uh, Nixon's a complicated man, no doubt about it, and he's a complicated character.
1: There you go. There's the word, character. Nixon was a creation of Nixon. That's why he referred to himself on the third person, and not as Richard but as nixon.
0: Yeah, I thought that was like I kind of laughed at that the first couple times, but then it started to be very sinister. Like uh, Alex Luthor or a Dr. Dr Doom from the Fantastic 4 comics is probably the best example of he refers to himself as Doom. <laughs> Doom dares. Right. You know, to face the Fantastic 4 and and Nixon honestly in terms of like bad guys in reality or fiction, I feel like Dr. Doom and Richard Nixon are probably up there.
1: Hey, that's a, that's pretty spot on, uh, and a, a really good way of of looking at that is when he when Nixon in the movie is encouraged to apologize for the shootings of the students that were at Kent State University, he says, "I want to," but, but Nixon, Nixon can't. Nixon can't. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah. That was that and, was
1: rough. Yeah. I mean that that's amazing. That is amazing. Uh, Ed Harris who plays Howard Hunt. He says Nixon is the darkness reaching out for the darkness. I mean, yeah, Jesus that's chilling. Christ.
0: That's a chilling line. Doctor Doom shudders at that
1: line, right? And then, and then, one of the close before the actual his his resignation speech, one of the last lines of the movie um, that Anthony Hopkins gives is referencing that darkness, this idea of darkness that resided in the heart of Nixon and in the soul of Nixon he closes the movie by saying, I've always been afraid of the dark. And that is chilling as well, because Richard Nixon shouldn't be afraid of anything. Richard Nixon, by God is Richard Nixon. But at that point, he doesn't say Nixon's always been afraid of the dark. He says, I've always been afraid of the dark. Mm-hmm. And so it's amazing to see that he, you know, again, Kissinger saying, imagine what this man could have been. Had he ever been loved? Nixon says, you're the only friend I've got Henry. He makes Henry Kissinger get on his knees while he prays, while Nixon prays. And he asks, Henry, do you ever pray? You should. You should never be too proud to go on your knees before God. Why do they hate me so much? I I only did what I thought was right. They don't like the way I look. They don't like where I went to school. They don't like me because I'm not a Kennedy. And that's just... It's so heavy. It's so fucking heavy. And then, like you said, I think that the the culmination of that is when Nixon uh, also right before the line where he says, I've always been afraid of the dark, you see Nixon contemplating on his resignation and looking up at a portrait of Abraham Lincoln. And we've already seen him visit the Lincoln Memorial uh, in reverence earlier in the film. Now we see him staring down a portrait of Lincoln but as the camera moves around him, as Oliver Stone pans, we watch Nixon's admiration and reverence for Lincoln to literally and figuratively turn its focus to the fact that there stands Richard Nixon in the halls of the White House, literally in the shadow of another portrait, that of John F. Kennedy the famous portrait where Kennedy has his head bowed and when Nixon finally himself, not just the camera, but Anthony Hopkins as Nixon turns away from Lincoln and looks at Kennedy who he hated. Suddenly he relents and Nixon says to this painting, he says, when they look at you, they see what they want to be. When they look at me, they see what they are. And that is why Oliver Stone is great, is because (laughs) Oliver Stone, Oliver Stone has Richard Nixon be evil and be human in one moment. And Nixon, he says earlier, earlier in that very scene, I am that sacrifice. All leaders must finally be sacrificed. And that's what he's saying. That's what Oliver Stone is saying. Alexander had to die. Kennedy had to die. Nixon had to die. Vietnam had to happen. These are the definitive moments of this nation's history. Our freewheeling nation and our love of individualism results in catastrophe. America is meant to be cataclysmic. It has an underlying rot. It cannot live up to its own ambition. Ambition kills. Ambition killed Caesar. Ambition killed Christ. And that's what Oliver Stone is saying. It's that big. It's all that big. The stories are that big. The stories should be that big. Those are the great myths. That's how we understand ourselves. Not by glancing at our history, but by bathing in our history. To quote John Brown in the lead up to the American Civil War, John Brown, who was an abolitionist hero, he said the sins of this great nation, the sins of of slavery would only ever be cleansed by the nation being bathed in its own blood. Now, that's hyperbole fit for
0: Oliver Stone. And I feel like you yourself are embodying the melodrama of (laughs) Oliver Stone. (laughs) Um, I know you said that you were going to compare yourself to Oliver Stone in this podcast, and you haven't really yet, but I think you're, you're not so much comparing yourself as you are embodying the Oliver Stone spirit. I could hope for absolutely nothing short of that. <laughs> and uh, thanks to every one of our listeners who's uh, gotten this far into the podcast. This is quite a, a long one, but we appreciate you. We're glad you're sticking along because we got we got a couple more movies left to go. And jumping from Nixon to a shit show that Nixon inherited, we're talking about two thirds of the Oliver Stone Vietnam trilogy. Uh, we're talking about uh, both Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July. I wanted to put these last because I thought of the movies that I watched, these were his finest. I thought these were my favorites. I think I saw Platoon and Full Metal Jacket around the same time, and they it sort of were the same movie in my mind for a lot of time. Um, I can dig that. I, I can dig that. I think I probably can.
1: I think that was the case with me as well.
0: Yeah, I think probably a lot of people if you if you take all that. I mean, when we were growing up as we mentioned before, there's a lot of Vietnam shit going on. We kind of reached we were growing up during the peak of that filmmaking era. So, obviously, these were two monumental films in that era. But anyway, yeah, they they sort of existed in the as the same movie in my mind. Obviously, I have separated them since. However, if I were to put one in, god, what would I watch? I guess I'd watch Platoon Because I still, much in the same way, going back to that Total Recall clip from earlier, the same way that that just makes my tummy hurt, still to this day, as a nearly 40-year-old man, Private Pyle's entire journey and his uh, ultimate suicide always made my tummy hurt, just because I guess I'm a sensitive sort but uh, we're not talking about Full Metal Jacket. That's there's no question that that movie's great. And There's honestly no question that uh, Platoon is great. I know it received some criticism, but this was Oliver Stone's first Best Director Oscar win. Uh, it was also it also won Best Picture uh, the year it came out. So again, uh, we don't really have to describe that it's great, but it did have its just tractors, Darren. If you want to take it away.
1: Yeah, Pauline Kael, a highly regarded film critic for The New Yorker, said that Platoon was uh, full of melodramatic, there's that word, melodramatic shortcuts. That this movie was nothing but poetic license and romanticized insanity. That Oliver Stone left no room for honest emotion in his entire film. That's damning. Uh, we've said it all podcast long, is when these critics choose to go on the offensive, they vivisect Oliver Stone,
0: like creatively and personally. Oh, okay, well, let me just say that this movie is uh, what we talked about before the the autobiographical Oliver Stone Vietnam Experience movie. It stars Charlie Sheen as the Oliver Stone stand-in. He, uh, he also quits college. To volunteer for the military to go onto the front lines of Vietnam, and guess what it's fucked up. <laughs> things go <laughs> badly, and one thing that we haven't like talked a lot about that Darren when we first started talking about uh, his movies and talked about like uh, one of the biggest themes that Oliver Stone carries through is innocence lost uh, Darren, you feel that when JFK was assassinated that was that era of america's losing its innocence. But this oh, is- Oh man, you, absolutely. Yeah, this I feel like is is watching Oliver Stone through this Charlie Sheen character, losing his innocence and losing that bright-eyed patriotism, uh, which also happens. I mean, we could talk about both at the same time in this case. Uh, it also happens in Born on the Fourth of July where, yeah, a dyed-in-the-wool patriot, played by Tom Cruise, decides he's also gonna go into the military, go to the front line, And again, shit's fucked up over there, and he loses any of that innocence and any of his patriotism because he sees, A, what they were doing was wrong, how they were going about it was wrong, but he starts to disagree with why we were overseas and why we were doing what we were doing in the Vietnam conflict. So both characters share a lot of DNA, and I think they share a lot of Oliver Stone's DNA. But both fantastic movies. And to go back to Pauline Kael, what she was saying about uh, leaving out any space for emotion, I do think that Charlie Sheen, maybe just as by the fact that he's not the greatest actor in the world, I feel like he doesn't go through some s- super strong, clear emotional arc. Obviously, he does have an arc in the film having, again, the devil and angel on his shoulder. We have... Uh, Willem Dafoe, who shows up in both these movies, both Born in the Fourth of July and Platoon, as uh, Sergeant Elias, who is, you know, a veteran of the Vietnam War, and he's been in the shit for a long time, but he's still been able to keep his moral center firmly planted. And then we have Sergeant Barnes, a fantastic Tom Berenger, as a literally mangled human being whose face is just as fucked up as his soul, who is the devil on his shoulder And who Vietnam has totally corrupted. It's a story of Charlie Sheen with these two guys on his shoulder. And whereas he doesn't go through some huge emotional turmoil in the movie, there's certainly emotion there. I feel like watching the horrors of Vietnam and watching what this kid had to go through and what all of these people had to go through and watching these people die, these people that we get to like or love over the course of this movie, the emotion goes into the audience. It goes to us to feel that emotional impact, and I certainly felt it when I rewatched it the other day.
1: I could not agree more, and I'm gonna use this opportunity to say, to I'm gonna say something and it's gonna be a half statement and a half question to you because you're the one who works in Hollywood. Maybe you can speak uh, in support of this or uh, against it. When did it become uncool for a film's score, to emphasize important emotional beats. Why the hell does that get so much Dude, criticism?
0: I don't know. And it That's the me, fucking
1: point, it, right?
0: right? It drives me insane. I think there is a point where you could have the John Williams style that really just knows when to tug at those heartstrings that is emotionally manipulative. But at some point in the 90s or, or early 2000s, certainly – we just lost that now all film music to me is just a, a a drone basically just a, Uh, a little bit of light background noise. And that bums me out. Not only because I, my uncle is a composer who wrote the theme song to here's why it's great. Who is from the camp of more traditional theme scores like the John Williams camp. But yeah, fuck that. I hate, I hate what scores have become. They have, they're not melodic anymore. They're not sentimental anymore.
1: Right. And when someone dares to do so, they get shit all over. That's the thing I'm more upset about. I mean, I'm upset, obviously, like you, that they've that scores, for the most part, have stopped being that way. But the fact that filmmakers are criticized when they do use the score that way, that seems to be like the hot thing is oh he he's leaning on the musical crutch and he's telling us how we should feel uh yeah that's why there is
0: a score i really hate that criticism all of film is emotional manipulation and the score is just a tool in the toolbox and let me just say that uh talking about john williams he did the score for born on the fourth of july for jfk and for nixon and god damn, they're good scores. Like, I think his work elevates all three of those films. Even if... Uh, most I w- definitely. I will say, though, they play the, the theme in Born on the Fourth of July a lot. And it sounds very much like the Terminator theme. Because it's like... <laughs> it's just, the first three notes are almost identical to the first three notes of the Terminator theme. And I was like... Every time it would play. Uh, and it's a very common refrain in the movie. But yeah, I... Look, I am all about the older style of scores. I'm all about that Spielberg life, that John Williams life, man. He's the greatest of all time for a reason. And I miss his uh, glory days. I miss the glory days of that kind of score. Like, the E.T. score elevates that film so much. And is it emotionally manipulative? Absolutely. But you know what? Your emotions are fucking high by the end of that movie because of that score. That's my point who
1: said there's anything wrong with that why did it become unfashionable for film scores to be emotionally manipulative it's like i only like paintings done by painters who don't use paint brushes because it's too easy to paint with a paintbrush it's
0: fucking stupid i think that just tastes have changed too much and i don't know if there's ever going to be a way back to that I love... uh, Maybe I just love things that are old. Darren, I think I'm old. I think I just like the things the way they used to be.
1: (laughs) Oh, I'm totally old. I don't understand. All these kids and their Snapchat and their TikTok. Uh, They're
0: ticking and they're talking. Which is it? Are you ticking or you talking, you dumb children?
2: Get off your phones
0: (laughs) and listen to a John Williams score. Why don't you... Trading your TikTok for John Williams. Back to Platoon for a moment. I mean... uh, Obviously, it won Best Picture. There's not a lot that needs to be said in terms of like us telling you why it's great because it just it's great because uh, you go to Hollywood, you go to the Kodak Theater, they have these giant pillars with every single Best Picture winner name inscribed on it, and there it is right there. The proof is in the pudding. But I was so drawn into this movie watching it. Having already seen it probably a good five to ten times before, I was so sucked in and so bowled over by by specifically Tom Berenger and Willem Dafoe's performances. They were so phenomenal in this. And are they archetypes? Yes. Are they larger than life characters? Absolutely. But man, it's effective. And I just think that Oliver Stone had to distill the the worst and the best of humanity into this movie, and I think that's why it appeals broadly is because it is so it is so broad. <laughs> But I think that where Polly and Kale might have taken offense to that, I think that that's a virtue of the movie and that it can touch anybody because we can relate to the good and evil. I mean, that's what makes Star Wars so loved is because it's a basic good and evil story. And that's what we have here between Barnes and Elias. 100%. I couldn't have said it better myself. I feel like this this podcast is less a conversation and more just me and you trading off monologues about why we love this. But fuck, man, we're passionate. And Born on the Fourth of July, this is, I I think I had seen it when it came out probably 89, 90 on video. I remembered certain scenes, specifically a section in, in Mexico later in the film, but I had not seen it as an adult, so it was basically all new to me and I was really blown away by it as well. It's about... A uh, soldier, uh, Ron Kovic, like I said, he enlists himself into the front lines of the Vietnam War. While he's there, he accidentally kills a fellow soldier. Right after, he also accidentally kills children and an entire family of innocent civilians. Uh, So you want a double whammy of like innocence lost. There you go. Ron Kovic loses it quick. Uh, And then shortly thereafter, he is paralyzed from the chest down. And uh, goes through hell in a VA hospital and then tries to return home and reintegrate into society. But finds it harder when he's lost all of his faith in his patriotism and in his government. And eventually he becomes an activist against the Vietnam War. But yeah, it was a remarkable film. And and you you seem to think that Tom Cruise was miscast in this.
1: No, I, I don't. I really don't. I think that I love him in this role. What I, what I said earlier or what I meant to convey... Was that I feel like he was cho- he did find job, but I feel like he was chosen because who he was at that time, uh, and I feel the same thing happened with Kevin Costner. And so, there are people that are critical of Charlie Sheen in Platoon and Tom Cruise in Born on the Fourth of July and Kevin Costner in JFK because they were just up and coming guys of the moment, like, and, and and I, yeah, and I feel like. That's all I'm saying is that that's what got Tom Cruise the part. I think he did a great job in the part. I'm not trying to shit on that on his performance at all. I think that the most important thing that I take away from Born on the Fourth of July is that maybe Ron Kovic and his experience as a U.S. Marine in Vietnam did not exactly mirror Oliver Stone's personal experience in Vietnam. But what Ron Kovic did was his story his autobiography which was adapted by oliver stone for the film i think it was the most beat for beat chronological approach storybook fashion way of telling oliver stone's story not oliver stone's personal life story his his biography but his vision in jfk we see the loss of innocence uh, because JFK is assassinated, and we see Garrison mourning that loss and Garrison lamenting that his children would grow up in a world where innocence had been lost. We, we see glimpses of it in Nixon. Uh, we see glimpses of it uh, in Platoon, where there's elements of the action that will later be blamed for so much innocence lost happening. But in Born on the Fourth of July, it's like, here, here's the story of America in this one man's life. That's why you get all of the like hoop skirts and school sweaters. And let's go to the malt shop and the, the drive-in and the drive-thru. Oh, yeah. it,
0: it's definitely and like it's an idealized fifties feel to the very beginning of the movie. And it's yeah. also the idealized version of war and the military. It's kids playing war and having a blast, <laughs> then we- And are- a lot
1: of lot of flag waving.
0: Oh, yeah, tons. And then we're eventually faced with the realities of that, and it's dark.
1: Exactly. And that's what Oliver Stone is showing here is that, all right, for those of you who didn't get it, here it is. I think that that's what Oliver Stone is trying to do with Born on the Fourth of July. Here it is. You are Ron Kovic, America, or you know somebody, your brother, your best friend, your uncle is Ron Kovic. America bled in the jungles of Vietnam. Ron Kovic bled in the jungles of Vietnam. And uh, you, America, you Americans, you come from a fundamentally flawed place. And, you know, Ron Kovic, we get to watch it play out in the the guise of a single man's life.
0: Yeah, and the, the beauty of this movie is it shows that with when you do question things and when you do look at things in a different way, you can change and grow and adapt. And that's what he does over the course of the movie. It's quite a tale. And like I said, he ends at the, the film ends at the 1972 uh, Republican national convention, which uh, also factors into Nixon. Uh, I just feel like this is like the nexus of Oliver Stone's interests. It's all Vietnam, JFK, Nixon, the war and patriotism and the eroding of that patriotism uh so i feel like maybe that's why this is probably his best movie also just from a purely technical standpoint this movie is so gorgeous the the golden glow of the early days of of ron kovic's life uh just beautifully photographed the searing heat that you can feel when he's in vietnam and the, the confusion, and there's just so much vision to this movie. I feel like that's why I was disappointed in his Snowden movie, because it just didn't feel like there was a vision there, an, a literal like vision of the an artistic way to put this on the screen. And that may go back to either the fact that, like I said before, computers are inherently non-cinematic, or it might just be because of... The way filmmaking has changed and how we've gone to digital and I think that all of his earlier movies were obviously shot on thirty-five millimeter and they look so gorgeous. I just again I wish we could return to those days before we shot everything on these iPhones. You know Well, you uh, know what the
1: really the 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 most glaring thing about what you've just said that never made sense to me is I understand the past giving way to progress when something is progress. If you make a better mousetrap, then you get rid of the old mousetrap. But just because you made a new mousetrap doesn't mean you get rid of the old mousetrap. Is that new one better? Uh, It's not. Well, then let's keep using the old one. If your movies don't look good, don't fucking do it that way.
0: The problem I had with Snowden was because it looked like every other movie because this, making a movie has become so much easier and so much cheaper for the layperson to go make one and I mean shit I've, I fall into that category I've made short films and stuff that are probably terrible but uh, just like I think <laughs> <laughs> it's just so easy to make a movie now you just pick up a camera and you don't have to have that level of competence and I feel like so many movies are made where it's just like uh, I don't know how to shoot this we're just going to put it on a handheld and Eh, we'll just shoot it and whatever. There's no art to it. There's no, like I said, vision to it. And I feel like Oliver Stone must have lost his vision between these movies that we're talking about and Snowden, because it just felt like any schmo off the street could have shot that. And unfortunately, that was the, the newest movie that he's come out with. But by God, back in these days, he just had it. Also, you know, having great collaborators helps like the aforementioned Robert Richardson. He knew what he wanted back in these days. He had something to say and he knew how to say it. But what I'm trying to get around to that I'm saying in a very circuitous way is that this movie is gorgeous. It is very deliberate. It's uh, everything is just perfectly placed. And that's what I love about this movie. Again, it also won best picture at the Academy Awards. So there's no question That's great. Darren, do you have anything else about Born on the Fourth of July? I just, uh, in closing about
1: Born on the Fourth of July, I just want to reiterate the fact that this is Oliver Stone's raison d'etre in in filmmaking and in life, is to enlighten uh, the movie-going public, the American public, to the fact that there is an American dream. uh, That American dream has fallen apart, according to Oliver Stone. And, and by the time Vietnam comes and goes, uh, America is much worse for wear. That's evidenced by watching Ron Kovic's life completely spiral out of
0: control. Well said. But look, we've been here for a very, very long time discussing the ins and outs of these movies, the ins and outs of the man himself. But I think the bottom line is Oliver Stone... Is great, and here's why. The word visionary gets thrown around a lot in commercials and marketing these days about filmmakers, like your Zack Snyder's of the world, your Taika Waititi's, your Christopher Nolan's. I think it's overused. It's overused in the same way that the word awesome is overused. I think it has lost a little bit of its meaning, which is to say that when I say visionary, I really mean... It in the truest sense of the word. And I think that Oliver Stone is a visionary filmmaker, at least in these this heyday that we've talked about. These films had a distinct vision, not only purely visually, but they were all saying something. He was trying to say something about the state of our country, about the soul of our country. And I think over the course of these few films that we've discussed today, He really did put a stamp on, I guess you could say, the American dream, really trying to shed some light on the American reality. None of his films feel like anybody else's films, and that is something that's great. And you don't find that all that often these days in filmmakers, and it was something that I wish would come back. Maybe it will one day. Maybe you and I, Darren, will be the ones to bring it back, and we'll shoot on 35 millimeter. and we're going to have old corny music playing in the background, and it's going to tug at your heartstrings. It's going to be melodramatic. <laughs> oh, if I have anything to do with it, it's definitely going to be melodramatic AF. Hell yeah. Darren, any final thoughts?
1: Oh, you bet your sweet Bippy. I have a few parting words, if you will. I think that Oliver Stone is a great filmmaker. I think that Oliver Stone is a great storyteller. I think Oliver Stone is a great myth maker. I think Oliver Stone is a great American. And I think that Oliver Stone is a great artist. Anybody who knows us from our college years know that John famously once said that first and foremost, he was an artist. And I... Uh. Have gotten a lot of mileage out of making fun of him with that
0: gag, and so have many of our dear friends. That was, by the way, folks, that was something that I wrote on my live journal that one of our friends decided that he wanted to take and really needle me with it. It was just a college kid trying to make himself feel a little bit more important. But anyhow, just wanted to explain that. Sorry to interrupt.
1: Perfectly okay to explain it. I was just hoping you weren't going to try and explain it away.
0: (laughs) No, first and foremost, I am an artist. Fuck you. Well, that's
1: the thing. No, that's not fuck me. You should be thanking me for what I'm about to say. Fuck you, world, for
0: doubting me. Because hell yeah, I'm an artist. I own it. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, you're an artist.
1: Hell yeah, I'm an artist. That, I think, is what made this particular episode of Here's Why It's Great possible is that you and I, on an artistry level, on a storytelling level, realize that Oliver Stone has a a voice. He has uh, an important voice. He has a unique voice, and he has a creative voice. And it might be sometimes bombastic. It is most definitely always sentimental, but I do not think it is dishonest. I do not think that emotions are dishonest. I think that art is supposed to engage. Art is supposed to provoke. Art is supposed to operate on a different level from documentation. We heard earlier that one of the criticisms of Oliver Stone's film, JFK, was that it was journalistically bankrupt nonsense guess what? Oliver Stone's not a fucking journalist. He's a filmmaker. He is a storyteller and I have to employ this quote of all of the damning quotes that I've read over the course of this podcast that rip Oliver Stone and Oliver Stone's body of work to shreds. This is one which I believe all encompassingly redeems Oliver Stone as an artist, a filmmaker and a storyteller, and this quote comes from Werner Herzog. And Werner Herzog says, Of Oliver Stone, there are deeper strata of truth in cinema. And there is such a thing as poetic ecstatic truth. It is mysterious and elusive, and it can be reached only through fabrication and imagination and stylization. And god damn, that is true. I think of Oliver Stone, I think of good film, and I think of good art. It does not have to explain something to you. Art does not need to hold your hand. Art should not be journalistic. Art should be bombastic. It should be explosive. It should be in your face. And it should manipulate your emotions. Otherwise, what are you doing?
0: You said it, man. Oh lordy, what a time we've had. I feel like you and I have been in the shit. I feel like we've been in the jungles of Vietnam ourselves. We've gone to war for Oliver Stone today. But what did you folks think? Should Oliver be stoned? (laughs) Or is this all just a government conspiracy, man? Let us know. How can you let us know? You can email us at hwigpodcasts at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at HWIG podcast, or of course you can go to our Facebook page and find us at facebook.com slash HWIG podcast. Get your family to listen to us, get your friends to listen to us wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Uh, Darren, thank you so much for joining me on this odyssey. Uh, This is definitely going to be the longest episode of the show so far. I find it very appropriate that it's you and I to uh, reach that milestone. Well,
1: I appreciate you having me. I appreciate you accepting this uh, as a topic that you felt was appropriate for your podcast. Sitting here in quarantine, I have not had a whole lot to look forward to, and so I definitely uh, counted the moments until um, that we could sit down and actually record this podcast. Because it's not like we both have not both been busy, but uh, to sit down and make this time to do this has been. Excellent. And I love talking about Oliver Stone and his movies.
0: As do I. Is there anything you'd like to plug?
1: Yeah, I guess so. It's a little bit different than last time I was on. Last time when we talked about Super Mario Brothers, uh, Perry Smith and I were absolutely rocking and rolling with our podcast, uh, which uh, of course is the whole reference show, the only podcast that calls it right down the middle and uh it was a professional wrestling podcast and we uh, operated well over 3 years and uh, unfortunately, we hit a couple of speed bumps, and so the whole and show is not airing right now. It is not producing new episodes. We've kind of stalled for the time being, but so has the wrestling industry, and in case you haven't noticed, so has the rest of the world. So it's hard to cover a topic that, uh, while it does continue to persist and produce uh, new entries is almost unwatchable, and that's a conversation for another day. But since yeah, I'm not we, here we're necessarily, not gonna be doing any,
0: uh, we're not going to do a "Here's Why It's Great" on uh, wrestling without an, a crowd. It's the weirdest, saddest yeah, that, thing I could possibly think of.
1: Yeah, that it's it's complete garbage. So, unfortunately, without having the podcast to plug, I mean, I'm just a humble history instructor. So, if I had to send anybody out on the uh, on the
0: world wide web on the uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, information superhighway.
0: <laughs> I would. God, you them. really are aging us. We're aging ourselves bad this time around.
1: Well, at least this one was intentional. I'm aware of what I was doing. But if anybody wants to find anything interesting involving me and the internet, go to bustergirlfriend.com. It's a one-stop shop. <laughs> it will send you basically to my Flickr account, and you can look at my photography portfolio speaking of artistry i specialize in what i like to call anti-portraiture and so you can find it at bustergirlfriend.com go check it out
0: make sure to check him out and make sure to check us out next time on here's why it's great the only podcast where we take what you hate and tell you why it's great until that time comes i am john bring and i am the incredible
1: badass that is
0: darren beasley and here's why it's great
2: In your story, Hernandez passes you and starts walking up the ramp. Mm -hmm. Then you say you were struck on the right temple. The spit then proceeds to ricochet off the temple, striking Newman between the third and the fourth rib. The spit then came off the rib, made a right turn, hitting Newman in the right wrist, causing him to drop his baseball cap. The spit then splashed off the wrist, pauses in midair, mind you, makes a left turn, and lands on Newman's left thigh. That is one magic loogie. Well, that's the way it happened. What happened to your head when you got hit? Well, uh, uh, my head went back to the left. Say that again. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. So, what are you saying? I'm saying that the spit could not have come from behind. That there had to have been a second spitter.